Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. from the 2017 album Childish Beginnings, available on iTunes. Welcome to episode 17 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I am Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonsterMoodyKid.wordpress.com. I will, on behalf of the club, call this meeting to order. Richard, why don't you tell everyone what we're going to talk about today? Well, of course, if you are in the classic horror community, you are very well versed in uh, all things Monster Kid related, and that is, of course, this is the time of year for the Rondo Awards, and they are named after actor Rondo Hatton, who is probably the last of the universal monsters, I think, uh, in all fairness. Coming in 1946 is when he had his three biggest films, sadly, all three of which were released after his death. So we're going to be covering the last three films of his career, of which two of them have very similar themes and almost are carbon copies of each other, even right down to the writers and directors involved. So we're going to be talking about The Spider-Woman Strikes Back, House of Horrors, and The Brute Man. So we're going to be giving an education on who Rondo Hatton was, a celebration of the Rondo Awards. That's right, and we're also going to go through the rondos. When this airs, the winners will probably have been announced, but I know I've said a million times, you have as well, that the Rondo Award nominee list is like a checklist for things that every monster kid should watch, should own, should enjoy, books, movies, TV shows, art, etc., podcasts, websites. So we're just going to go through that kind of like a shopping list and talk about some of our favorite things. When we're recording this, we don't know who's going to win. We think everyone's a winner, and we're going to talk about all of those. We've been covering them on both of our blogs, and I know that I've been given a shout-out to uh, all of my friends that I know who have been nominated, and as well as some write-in suggestions. So, But there's a lot of others that, that neither you or I are familiar with, and as, as you've said, it's, it's a shopping list. You go through, and you will see uh, several movies, for example, that I have not seen that I have been familiar with. There's one something about Black Coat's Daughter or something that I have seen pop up on a lot of different lists. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about the Rondo Awards and Rondo Hatton. That's 
right. And one quick other thing about Rondo, which makes this all appropriate in this Rondo Hatton episode, is that his birthday is this month as well. Yes, April 22nd, 1894. He was born in Hagerstown, Maryland. As we like to do sometimes, celebrate the birth or death of a particular actor, and that's been a theme for the last couple of months, celebrating Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre. And uh, Rondo Hatton, certainly not on the same level as those two, but I don't know, he might have been. He he died very suddenly, did not happen to you know, live to, to see his last several films released, but uh, there's a reason why. I, you know, I also think that um, his fame would have been very short-lived, and in particular around the release of The Brute Man. And we'll talk about that and, and some of the changes that happened in the uh, involving Universal Studios around that time. So any way you look at it, it's Rondo Hatton Month here at the Classic Horrors Club. Well, normally this is the time we do old business where we correct mistakes and talk about things that we left hanging in the last episode. I was unable to come up with any old business this time. This is also a time that we might play any voicemails or read any feedback. Sadly, we have none. That's very disappointing. I want to remind everyone that you can call in and leave voicemails. 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. The other thing that you can do to support us and to leave feedback is to join our Facebook group, The Classic Horrors Club Podcast on Facebook. We're getting new members every month. We now have people posting. One of our new members, Frank Norat, welcome Frank, has been posting pictures associated with episodes we've done, so I think that's fantastic. That's what it's intended for. Welcome a couple of other new members that we've gotten since our last podcast. Mark Nato LeHue. He's our friend from the Horror Cast on our old stomping grounds, the Phantom Podcast Network. Scott Waldeck and Matthew Parmenter. Those were our new members in March, so welcome to the club. Yes, welcome, gentlemen. So let's just get started. Uh, normally we'd play trailers from the movies at this point, but I was unable to find a, a trailer for any of these three movies. Nevertheless, I pulled a little bit of music. Let's listen to that to get in the mood and uh, go through our synopsises and uh, synopses. Synopsis, synopsi, and we'll come back and start talking about our movies. Richard, start us off. Tell us, just who is Rondo Hatton? Well, Rondo was born on April 22nd, 1894 in Hagerstown, Maryland, and he was actually not born with a disease that he would later have and later, you know, become known for, and that acromegaly. 
he was actually uh, a very popular and good athlete. He was uh, a football star in high school. Uh, after leaving high school, he joined the Florida National Guard to pursue a military career. He fought in the Mexican Border War, not the one of 2018. He was uh, actually in World War I, and he fought over in France. And it's there that he was exposed to poison gas, and it is believed that that gas is what triggered the acromegaly. He was hospitalized with a lung injury, and he was eventually medically discharged. At some point after that exposure to the gas, he began to develop acromegaly, which is a slowly progressive deforming of the bones in the head, hands, and feet, uh, as well as internal and external soft tissues caused by the disease of the pituitary gland. Normally, the disease appears after an individual uh, reaches their full genetic height, and then the production of growth hormones resume, but the bone structure can no longer produce uh, symmetric growth. However, everyone believes that the poison gas was, also, was the one thing that was responsible for his acromegaly because of his particular age at the time that he began to show the symptoms. And it's also that it was potentially caused by a tumor on the pituitary gland, which they said that the tumor was also potentially a response from the poison gas. Do they not know for sure? I also read somewhere that for many years they thought it was the gas, but then they decided it wasn't that it was this tumor. But do we really know definitively what it was? You know, and that, that's just it. I mean, I think that I've, I've read the same thing, that there's some different accounts. I mean, you know, that the fact that the tumor wasn't always there on the pituitary gland and it just reached a particular growth that then triggered the acromegaly, or was the tumor a direct result of the poison gas? And because it was on the pituitary gland, it's what triggered the acromegaly. I don't know if we'll ever know for sure. I don't know if there were very many autopsies done uh, on him after his passing. That I couldn't find. In either case, very, very sad. And I mean, this was a guy that in high school was popular, like you said, a good athlete. He was voted the most handsome boy in his class his senior year. Yeah, if you've seen a few of the pictures of him, obviously you can kind of see some of the same facial, you know, in the eyes or what have you. But definitely he was a very handsome man. And it is very unfortunate to what happened to him later in life. And that became a big part of of his eventual getting into acting, but also affected his his personal life. He was married three times. He was married to uh, his first wife, uh, Mabel, or May, Maybell, around 1928. It wasn't thought that it lasted very long because it would have happened sometime around that period that the acromegaly started to, to first appear. Uh, there was also an Elizabeth that he was married to around this time as well and also appeared to be rather short-lived. His third wife, uh, Mabel uh, Hausch, uh, he married in 1934, and he was married to her until his death in 1946. So she married him after the disease had started to appear and uh, clearly, you know, was, was much more faithful and much more in it for the long haul. You used the word faithful. I did read that somewhere, and it was just in passing. It wasn't about the history of his w- wives, but... It just said, and it must have been the second wife, it said the third one then was more faithful than the second one. So I wonder if, if she had cheated yeah, on him. And I think I read the same thing. Yeah, I think it, it certainly seemed to indicate that, you know, she, that there was perhaps some, some cheating going on there because obviously she, as the disease became more progressive and more pronounced, 
his his first couple of wives clearly were were bothered by that. But Mabel, the third wife, clearly was not. Well, good riddance to them if they're so superficial that the man they love just starts looking a little ugly. You should stick with him. Exactly. Absolutely. So he started acting in a lot of bit parts. He was noticed by director Henry King, who was shooting a movie called Hell Harbor in 1930. And he was actually covering the film because he was a reporter at the time. And he was offered a film role. And that's kind of how he he got his start. He remained a reporter. But uh, after his uh, second marriage ended, his third wife moved, uh, they moved to Hollywood. And he was doing a lot of bit parts, extra roles, really most of them unforgettable. And he was always kind of playing the heavy, uh, the big uh, creepy guy in the background, unfortunately. It wasn't until he played his first time playing the creeper role in 19, I think it was 43 or 44, 1944's Sherlock Holmes and the Pearl of Death, that he really kind of got on the radar of Universal Pictures as someone that they could potentially shoot to stardom because of his appearance. Unfortunately, he was like a real monster, and that's how they promoted him, uh, which obviously would never happen today. But it wasn't even a thing that they did for too long then, as you'll talk about as we go into these films. It became an issue by the time the third film was made, and even, I think, more so an issue after his passing is how they were going to promote him as the Creeper, as like a real-life monster. There was some backlash on that. But that's really his appearance is how he, he became famous in, in the handful of films towards the end of his career. You know, I just watched, like a week ago, The Hunchback of Notre Dame with Charles Lawton. I didn't even recognize him. He had a quick cameo appearance i don't even know if he was credited in uh, hunchback of notre dame and i know exactly the scene i can remember it and i just i didn't recognize him of course that would be what seven years earlier i don't know how fast the disease progressed he started to show signs obviously by the 30s so i you know i don't know i haven't seen a progression and i've seen hunchback but i didn't know he was in it so yeah he's um, one of the contestants in the king of fools contest when they stick their faces oh, up wow. through the okay hole. supposedly i didn't See him, like I said. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if it progressed. Uh, I mean, he looked the same in the three films we've seen here, but they were also all filmed within two months of each other and literally a few months before his death. Uh, in real life, though, he was apparently a very kind, sensitive person, unknown whether he was really unhappy with uh, his portrayal as a human monster. It wouldn't have really mattered. He was under contract to Universal, so he was going to have to do whatever films they they sent his way, or he'd be in breach of contract. But whether or not you know he was happy with that, or maybe just happy to get the work, um, I didn't really couldn't really find anything on what his personal opinion was of of that particular phase of his career. And that may be because again, all three films were were made, but not released until after his death, and so he might not have had an opinion on those films because they hadn't been finished. Around Christmas of 1945, just after he finished the third end of these films, The Brute Man, he had a mild heart attack. Acromegaly, of course, uh, some of the side effects are heart weakness, diabetes, blindness. So he was at least suffering from some heart issues at this point. Reportedly recovered from the first heart attack, but then just a month later, he suffered 
the fatal heart attack, which uh, unfortunately ended his life. He died on February 2nd, 1946 in Beverly Hills, California. Interestingly enough, though, here we are decades later, and he has a legacy. I mean, his image is what is used for the uh, Rondo Awards, and it's not used to make fun of him, but I think it's, you know, the intent behind it was to kind of pay homage and recognition to someone, you know, hasn't necessarily been in the mainstream. I mean, Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, I mean, they, everyone knows about these individuals. That's what the Rondo Awards are kind of based on, is like recognition for some of the lesser known, and that's why there's some of the categories, because it's a classic horror category, and classic horror doesn't necessarily get the love in a lot of mainstream media these days because everyone wants to talk about contemporary horror. I, I think that's that's why his, his image was used for the Rondo Awards. The only other thing that I can think of, uh, and I remember when I saw the movie, was The Rocketeer in 1991. The villain in that looks like Rondo Hatton, and that was intentional. The time period would have been right, because uh, it's set, what, in the 1940s, because it's got Nazis and the bad guys. And so that was uh, that was an intentional uh, homage to Rondo Hatton in 1991. Mm. Any other homages that uh, come to mind and during your research? Did anything come up? Uh, I, I'm thinking I might have missed one. Uh, you're, you're I believe you, you have. have I, uh, Doctor Who? Does this ring a bell? Oh, my gosh. It Possibly. Possibly. Okay, well, I will elaborate, and I only know from what I read. I cannot verify that this is true or not. But supposedly, the episode entitled The Wedding of River Song, there was a character whose appearance was based on Hatton's. The actor played him was credited with the pseudonym Rondo Haxton. I vaguely remember that. I've seen that Doctor Who episode. It's a couple years old now. I, I am drawing a blank, though, as far as the the image, but I, I do kind of remember that it wasn't a big scene. I don't I don't think or a big role, but man, you you you've got me. You've you got the doctor. I outhooed you. <laughs> you outhooed me. Yes, I, I I've uh, spread my love for who you know. So now now you're coming up with the references. Uh, now we've only got to come up with a Star Trek reference, and I'll have to admit, I, I don't have one right off bat. Maybe we'll come up with one. We always seem to find something. Some light will go off at some point, I'm but, sure. Because uh, I honestly, I, I I had forgotten about that. I was like, I vaguely remember it, but again, it's I'm not... I'm not remembering the scene entirely. So there's awesome. one other one other reference I ran across, and I don't, I haven't seen it. And again, I'm just reading about it. But I think it it was in the context of his legacy, and not that it's well known, but occasionally it will pop up, like in the things we say. But it also popped up in the Rockford Files in an episode called Only Rock and Roll Will Never Die. Jim Rockford, James Garner, was exasperated at a friend who dismisses himself as unattractive. And Jim Rockford says, you're no Rondo Hatton. Oh, wow. Obviously, I mean, that's 1970s. Yeah, that was uh, 70... Not sure. Not sure, but sometime in the 70s. Right. So, yeah, so that's... So, okay, so Rondo's been kind of present, you know, over the decades. At least, you know, there are those in Hollywood who remember Rondo Hatton. I bet people would recognize him even if they didn't know his name was Rondo Hatton. Oh, I think so. I mean, I mean, especially, you know, again, with the Rocketeer, you know, although that's, what, now 30 years old? Or be 20 years old? Oh, no. gosh. Well, more than that. Math. Yes, gosh, math. <laughs> you got to sit here and add... 
Uh, well, not math. I don't even want to figure it out when I think well, that it's yeah. even that old. I yeah, just like, I, I don't like, care. Yeah. I guess I would consider a classic, you know, if it's that old. So these three films were all made over the course of three months, uh, September to November of 1945, and uh, were released, and in the case of The Brute Man, for example, it was released almost a year later, almost a year after Rondo passed away. So as I said earlier, Rondo never got a chance to see the success, or I guess there really wasn't much success at the time, but to see the release of these three films. Had Rondo survived, you know, I don't know... Do you think Universal would have been would have continued to make the Creeper films? I mean, considering where they were at when they released The Brute Man, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we, we cover that film, but Universal technically didn't even release it. They sold the film. Uh, and considering the low level of horror films that were being released in 46 and 47, I'm not sure they would have made it. I don't, I don't think they would have either. And these are really, we'll, we'll talk about it, not really horror films as we know them they're more mysteries thrillers horrific elements but and you talked about when they were released i find this very interesting so spider woman strikes back was released march 22nd of 46 house of horrors one week later yeah march 29th of 46 and then the brute man not till october 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 1st 1946 so I, i don't know if i'm jumping the gun or not but i wonder if that was originally the intention of their release order because to me the last one that came out the brute man is sort of his origin story a little bit i mean i definitely place it if they were linear as happening before house of horrors well and i think that's another thing is although he plays the character known as the creeper i don't know is it the same character or a a similar character. Well, I don't think it's the same because in the Sherlock Holmes movie, I don't think he would have been the same creeper, even though he was called the creeper. He could um, have been because those movies were actually set in the 1940s. In the United States? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Only the first two films that Universal made of Sherlock Holmes were set in the time period. Mm. And then when they started up the new series, when the war started, they moved Sherlock Holmes to modern day times because that way they could do some more Bond stuff. They could do some Nazis as the bad guys. So they're actually set in the 1940s. Shame on me for not knowing that. (laughs) Technically, I mean, he could be, but I always kind of, my mind as I was watching these films, is like the the connection is is loose, very loose at best. Yeah, I I can see though, because he could be. At least in, well, he didn't play the creeper in the first movie, but in the other two, I could easily see Brute Man being the first movie. Yeah, maybe there's a gap in between, but uh, you know, and then the way that House of Horrors begins, you know, could have happened after with the sculptor. I could see saying, that. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Just I like to pretend. Yeah, even though they were like released and filmed after each other, you know, I, I could see that. Yeah, the Brute Man, very similar type of film, but yeah, it it was more of a. And, and it explains why, you know, he might be a killer in House of Horrors. There's really no explanation for that. Other no, than he's already is. killing at the end right. of the film, whereas Brutman covers the fact that he just escaped from prison. Wasn't that correct? Or didn't he just get released? Or he was... Or is I, am I just thinking of that? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that. that no, that sounds familiar. I don't know. I mean, but he's already out. So we don't see him, you know, if he's been to jail or whatever. We're not seeing him escape. But he's enacting. Well, I think he was out of the Haas. No, that was earlier. He's enacting some revenge in that film. Whereas in 
House of Horrors, there's really not revenge going on for him. Uh, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, yeah. but uh, let's talk about the first film. Okay. The Spider-Woman Strikes Back. Evening, Eddie. Hello, Mr. Stapleton. Here it is. didn't you let me know? I didn't make up my mind till yesterday. I always knew you'd make it up someday, darling. Oh, you didn't come to see me then? No, Hal, I didn't. I'm going to work here. In Domingo? I answered an ad and here I am, for a while at least. Just two pieces, wasn't it, miss? Yes, that's right. My trunk's coming later. Thanks. Well, trunk sounds like you came to stay. Look, Jean, even though you haven't changed your mind, couldn't I see you once in a while anyway? Of course, Hal. I'll call you just as soon as I'm settled. Well, uh, couldn't I give you a lift wherever you're going? <laughs> Thanks, but I think they're sending a car for me. Okay. I'll be waiting for that phone call. I'm in the book. Good night, Hal. Good night. Gene Kingsley arrives in the town of Domingo, population 1,492, to take a job as companion to Zenobia Dollar a woman blinded during her research in Central America. She moves into the old dark house with the Cenobia and her servant, Mario. When cows start dying on farms in the area and Jean starts investigating the disappearance of her predecessor, we suspect that Zenobia and Mario may be up to no good. The Spider-Woman Strikes Back. When did she strike the first time? Well, and that's where <laughs> it's interesting because Gail Sondergaard in this movie plays Zenobia Dollar, the spider woman, because she is using spiders as part of her dastardly plot. She played a similar character uh, in the Sherlock Holmes movie, Spider Woman, yet it's not the same character. She does not play Zenobia in that movie. Universal promoted The Spider Woman Strikes Back as a sequel to the Sherlock Holmes film, when in fact it is not. Hmm. Um, she is definitely playing a similar character, but yet two very different characters. It was just Universal's way of trying to capitalize on the previous Sherlock Holmes film, but in fact, they're definitely not the same person. Technically, I guess by title, she's striking back because they want to say she struck in the first film, but it's not really the same person. Yeah. And I guess she could be striking back at the the people that are that she's... Well, she is, because she, she's coming back and, and kind of striking back at the people who kind of took her, her family's land. So I think that's where that, that can come into play. Gail Sondergaard, of course, did have a few films in the 1940s, besides the Sherlock Holmes movie uh, Spider-Woman in 43. She was in the 41 version of The Black Cat, which we will mention that title a couple of other times as we talk about these films and the people involved in them. She was also in 1944's The Climax with Boris Karloff, a pseudo-sequel-ish of The Phantom of the Opera. Some people refer to it as that, or a take on Phantom. About the only thing that has that film, I think, has going for it is Boris Karloff and the fact that it's in color. That, that's not one of my favorite Karloff films. Yeah. Brenda Joyce plays uh, young Gene Kingsley, the uh, caretaker companion of Zenobian. 
her biggest claim to fame was actually playing Jane in five Tarzan movies, opposite both Johnny Weissmuller and Lex Barker. But she was very disillusioned with Hollywood. She entered Hollywood. She didn't do very many films. Whatever Hollywood producers, they weren't happy when she got married to an army officer and immediately stuck her in B movies. And she got frustrated. And after her uh, fifth and final Tarzan movie in 1949, she quit acting and never acted again. Hmm. Uh, she went off to uh, to live with her husband in Washington, D.C., and she did some work, I think, with refugees, but uh, never did another thing. So Brenda Joyce, besides the Tarzan movies, this is probably her most well-known film. And, and honestly, Spider-Woman Strikes Back is not an incredibly well-known film, although at one time it was, because this movie was part of the original shock theater package of 52 films. So it was a bit more highly regarded by Universal at that time, although, as we'll talk about, we talk about the availability of the film, I mean, the movie is incredibly hard to find now. But at least at one time, <laughs> it was sold to television, uh, actually ahead of some of the other more well-known films. Uh, Kirby Grant plays Hal Wentley, does a lot of westerns, uh, but he was in 72 episodes playing the lead character, I believe, in Sky King, a series I've never seen I've heard of it. I know uh, the late, great Vince Rotolo was a big fan of Sky King. I've never seen it. Have you? No, I've not. Uh, I think it was also a, a radio program uh, at one time. Milburn Stone played Mr. Moore. For those of us here in, in the, uh, the Kansas, Missouri area, uh, Milburn Stone is very well known. He was born in Burton, Kansas. Uh, I've been to Burton. Not a lot going on there. He is most well known for playing the character of Doc Adams. 605 episodes of Gunsmoke. Uh, he was in the uh, premiere episode in 1955, and uh, he hung on until the very end in 1975. I think he missed a few uh, a few episodes, maybe even a bigger part of the season when he had some health problems, but he was there towards the end of the series at the very least. <laughs> so 605 episodes worth. And when you say people in the area are very familiar, I was not, so well, thank you. Well, there you go. I know. I know. Well, I'm not originally from here, so that's my excuse. I know that he's talked about in the Wichita area, so maybe not as well known up here in Kansas City. Because where is, is Burton near? Wichita? Burton's or? not too far from oh, here, okay. so that's that's probably why. And honestly, you know, uh, as time goes on, and, and uh, Milburn Stone has probably become less less well known. I think a lot of younger people who don't watch westerns are not going to recognize Milburn Stone. Uh, and then, of course, Rondo Hatton plays the character of Mario, who's really more of a of a background character in this film, but he stands out and, and has, I think some of the more interesting scenes in a film that admittedly is a B film at best. Uh, it was written by Eric Taylor, who, uh, wrote a lot of films around this time. He wrote Black Friday with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. He wrote the 41 film, uh, of the Black Cat, which had Basil Rathbone and Bela Lugosi. Uh, he wrote the 43 version of Phantom of the Opera and also wrote Son of Dracula with Lon Chaney Jr. It was directed by Arthur Lubin, who did a lot of Abbott and Costello films in the early 40s. He also did the 43 version of Phantom of the Opera. He did a bunch of Francis the Talking Mule films <laughs> in the 1950s and ended out his career with a lot of TV work. And I think it was, and this is where I'm, I'm going to get confused here, it was either... Arthur Lubin, or the director of the next two films, 
uh, I think it was Arthur Lubin who uh, actually ended out his career doing some ABC after-school specials <laughs> in the 1970s. Not a very prestigious prestigious way to end your career, but... While you're doing credits, I want to add the musical director, Milton Rosen. All three of these movies had stock music, and it, some decent music, I guess, I couldn't distinguish the different music, but Hans Salter, Frank Skinner, Dimitri Tiomkin, even a couple others I'm not remembering at the moment. So some good music, but... I thought the music in this movie was absolutely horrible. It was overbearing. It, it's one of those scores that plays during every moment of the movie. There's no silence. Sometimes, it, it could have been the print, but sometimes it was louder than the volume. It was just, when I see a movie like that, and there are quite a few in this era, they're so hard for me to watch. I can't concentrate on what's happening because the movie's music is so overbearing. Well, I mean, the movie, it's not a well-made film, and it clocks in at less than an hour. There's indications that there was maybe a lot that was cut from this film, because there were 12 actors listed as being in the movie on screen, but only uh, but five of them actually had their scenes removed from the final release print. I could rattle off the, their names, but I didn't recognize any of them, so obviously supporting characters... What they played, or, or you know, uh, I don't know if they were maybe townspeople or whatever, but there was definitely an odd jump in the final reel, or actually the, the move to the final reel of the film, as Gene is aware now that uh, Zenobia is not blind, because that's a big... Spoiler point. alert. A spoiler <laughs> alert, Yes. You know, uh, Mario, I think, is aware that she knows, but Mario has been very protective of her. He obviously has an affection for her. She is serving Zenobia dinner and then goes off to her room. The reel ends. The next reel begins. The townspeople are getting out their pitchforks. They're ready to, to you know, burn, uh, burn things, as they always tend to do. And the very next scene, it segues to... Gene now tied up in the basement uh, in the uh, Zenobia's laboratory, and Mario is kind of standing over her. There's no explanation as to, because she was going off to her room, there's no explanation as to how she gets down there in the basement. So clearly, whether that was a scene that was filmed and, and edited for some reason, maybe trying to keep it under an hour so this could serve as a B film. Uh, I don't know. And I don't know, you know, if it was, if it was, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't filmed. Maybe that was just the way the script was. If that's the case, in either way, lousy editing or a lousy script, because that's a pretty big jump. I was, I had to actually rewind to see if maybe it was, you know, maybe it was the, the print of the film. The print for Spider-Woman Strikes Back it is, uh, the, the DVD I have, it's a an original film print. And so I suppose there could be maybe a break in the film at one point, and that scene just happens to be missing. It is available on YouTube, and it appears to be the same source, just with some of the, the opening segments of the film strip that's on my DVD have been cut. But it appears to be the same source, because that has the same jump, and, and so I don't know. I mean, did you find that odd? Oh, I did. And the whole thing is pretty disjointed. I mean, maybe I wasn't at, at my sharpest game, but when it shifted from her going to the house and the, the 
being afraid of Mario and what happened to the her predecessor there. And then to start talking about cows that had died, I, it was very, that was kind of jarring for me and I didn't realize, it took me a long time to realize exactly what is going on, what's the thread here, what's the overall scheme of Zenobia. Yeah, I think editing or script or something just wasn't wasn't very good. I liked Zenobia as a as a villain. I think that she Gail Sundergaard did a good job as Zenobia. Yeah, and I didn't know anything about the movie, so I, in fact, I made a note. She was so nice and friendly. I didn't suspect her of anything at all when Jean first arrives, and I thought, oh, Rondo's going to be the villain, you know, Mario, because of his appearance. Then as it goes on, yeah, she's the bad girl. You know, he, uh, you know, Rondo. Uh, his character Mario is is the manservant of sorts to Zenobia and, and the butler or whatever you want to call him. Uh, he's clearly fascinated by Jean, uh, perhaps a little too much. You know, he's he's bothered, I think, by the chain of events because he knows that Jean is getting drugged. She's getting, you know, used, and that bothers him. And he's not menacing enough to be able to stand up to Zenobia. He's clearly very subservient. Well, he's sort of a red herring, too, I guess, because there's speculation. In, in fact, um, Zenobia says that Jean's predecessor left because she wasn't comfortable with Mario. But then she turns right around and she denies that. She says, oh, not really. She left because she got married. I, that was kind of odd, too. Did you yeah, catch that? Yeah, I did. I did. And I think that, uh, again, I, I'm looking at the other films that Eric Taylor did, and... Uh, Black Friday is, a, I think, is a good film. It's it's not the best that Universal did. Uh, Black Cat forty one. Have you seen that? And I, I haven't. No. It's simply because it's in a Lugosi set. It's it's a typical old dark house film. It's not that great. I've never been a big fan of the forty three version of Phantom of the Opera uh, and Son of Dracula. I know a lot of people love that film. Not one of my favorites either. So. I enjoy it enough, probably the best of those four films. But Eric Taylor, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm going to put part of the blame on him as, a, as the scriptwriter. I'm thinking that some of the weakness in this film has to be on him. And the direction, I mean, Arthur Lubin, again, I love Abbott and Costello movies, but, you know, when you're looking at a, a big chunk of your career as Abbott and Costello films, Francis the Talking Mule films, those are very lighthearted movies. He doesn't have a lot of horror film cred or suspense mystery, thr- you know, thriller cred. Besides Phantom of the Opera Forty Three, which is more of a musical in, than anything. I don't know. Not a lot of, of a players involved in the the production of the film, which I think ultimately plays a part in why the movie is is just a little lackluster. I didn't get much sense of suspense or dread or a threat. I just, yeah, it may have been the print might've been a large part of it in the music, but this just really did nothing for me. It's interesting. You said uh, available on YouTube. I'll always post on Facebook when I'm watching a movie. That's how I keep track of what I watch. And sometimes someone responds. Sometimes I don't, but several people responded oh, where is it out on DVD or Blu-ray? Where can you see it? So it's one I think that people would like to see, and I'd like to see a good print of it, but otherwise, I'm kind of done with it. I think it's it's probably, I mean, at this point, Universal's released what they're going to release. I think 
even in, on DVD, uh, as we'll talk about with the next movie, House of Horrors, it was released on a basically a print-on-demand box set that some of the other harder-to-find universal films like The Mad Doctor of Market Street and The Strange Case of Dr. Rx. Spider-Woman Strikes Back, I think the opportunity to put it out on DVD has kind of come and gone. They're not, they're not even, you know, they're not doing much with their Universal Vault series anymore, I don't believe. I can't recall anything recently. Was it even on that original set of VHS tapes? No, with Universal? Huh. no it's never had a home media release. Oh. And it's actually a, one of the harder bootlegs to find. You can find it for about $10, but you're going to have to look. It doesn't pop up with great regularity. In fact, it's not even for sale right now on eBay. A few sites have it out there. So it's going to be a little harder film to find. And I think that says a lot. It's just not in high demand. And one of the odd thing about the movie, did you find it odd that when Zenobia was essentially being cornered, that she's been spending all these years with these plants, and, and but yet, oh my gosh, someone's at the front door, burn it all. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, I mean, okay, you've spent years with this plan, and then someone knocks at the door, and you're like, you're hitting the, the destruct button. I just, it, 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 I started laughing. I was like, really? It, that's all it took was someone at the front door, and then you're you're ready to burn it all. I, yeah, I think a horrible script. Yeah, and not. something in there is awfully flammable because we get a big explosion, and you know how I am with fiery explosions at the end of movies. I, yeah, that's the the yeah. Yeah, I had to see. I chuckled on that. I don't know. I mean, not this should not be at the top of your list of films to watch. I wouldn't even say it's the top of the Rondo Hatton films to watch. So, it's a it's a curiosity. I think it's worth watching. You know, once it's part of my collection. Uh, you know, I'm glad that I have it, mostly because it's a harder film to find. But having seen this film now twice, I honestly, when I was watching this movie. It had been probably 10 years since I'd seen it. I remembered nothing about it from the first time. And I don't think that I'll be watching it again anytime soon. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a better one, at least one that I enjoyed a, a whole lot more, House of Horrors. Marcel Delange, a struggling sculptor, saves the life of serial killer The Creeper, whom he manipulates into disposing of his harshest critics. When her boyfriend, painter Stephen Morrow, is implicated in the murders... Joan Medford places herself in danger by playing amateur detective. Yeah, House of Horrors, uh, released in 1946, and I think this was officially the last of the Universal horror films, aside from Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein two years later. I think this was the last of the quote-unquote, you know, real horror films that were released. Uh, and Rondo Hatton is is clearly the lead in this movie as he's playing the character of the Creeper. Interesting supporting cast in this one. Robert Lowry plays the character of Steve Morrow. Uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. I don't I don't think I'd call Rondo Hatton the lead in this in this movie. Well, I'd say more in the Brute Man. I mean, he's well because it's really it's the Brute Man is more about is more Steve about Morrow him. and his girl and the. The sculptor and the art critics. And I all guess that. that's maybe the way it's promoted was promoted though. True, true. I think. I mean, when you look at the movie posters and such, I mean, he was promoted as the lead. But uh, yeah, you you are right. I mean, he's really not the main character of the film, but they were promoting him as a way to try to sell the movie. Sure, sure. Sorry to interrupt with that. Um, no. So Robert Lowry plays the character of Steve Morrow. He's got a Kansas City connection. He was born in Kansas City in 1913. 
and he was a graduate of Paseo High School in 1931. Do we really? have a Paseo High School anymore? Uh, not that I know of. I mean, I wouldn't want to attend the high school in no, Paseo. That's no. not a good part of town, folks. So 1931 might have been different, not in 2018. He actually did a lot of genre films. He was in a, in a Mr. Moto film, a couple of Charlie Chan films, Revenge of the Zombies, The Mummy's Ghost. Uh, he played... Batman, a.k.a. Bruce Wayne, or Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman, in the 1949 chapter serial, Batman and Robin. You know, it's a shame, well, we are Batman fans, but it's a shame we don't joke about that like we do Dark Shadows and Doctor Who and Star Trek, because these movies are chock full of Batman references and actors and connections. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He went through a long period of time then uh, where he did lots of television work, but uh, towards the end of his career, he was in The Undertaker and His Pals in 1966, kind of made a, a late uh, return to the horror genre. Now, that's a movie I've had for a while. I have not seen that one. I've heard it's notoriously bad, but to the point where it's mildly entertaining. Have you ever seen The Undertaker? I have not. Pals? I have not. I, I don't even hear it talked about a lot. I so. was just checking the... There's so many movies, and as usual, when we record, I bring a list of movies that to see if Richard has that I can watch. And I always forget I have a couple of those big 50 movie sets. Yeah. So I finally sat down to make a list of all the movies on there so I can stop asking you for those if you have them. And anyway, Undertaker and His Pals is on one of those. So we had Virginia Gray as Joan Medford, uh, did lots of supporting film and TV work. Probably about the only other genre thing she did was an episode of science fiction theater, uh, which is something I know that uh, Vince Rotola was a big fan of. I've never seen any of those. Vincent Price did one or two of those, and there were actually those are extras on the Vincent Price collection set, I believe. Hmm. So there's something I'm going to watch sooner than later. I made a note she's in something called The Unknown Island from 1948. I have no idea if that's a genre film or not. It just sounded creepy. It does. I'm not familiar with that one, though. No. Martin Kozlek plays Marcel Delange. Again, he was in a lot of stuff uh, around this time. I've seen him in a lot of other films. He's almost a character actor of sorts, an odd character. He was in uh, The Mad Doctor, which is a movie I just recently watched myself, with Basil Rathbone. The Mummy's Curse, Frozen Ghost. Uh, lots of TV work towards the end of his career in the 60s or, or nearing the you know, latter part of his career. He was in a movie called The Flesh Eaters, which I've heard of, I have not seen. And how about a Batman reference? Yes. We have Alan Napier as F. Holmes Harmon, the, the art critic, better known as Alfred Penny, Pennyworth. I was going to say Pennyweather. Pennyworth from the 1960s Batman TV series. Did they use his last name in the series? I that's a good question. I'm, I, I mean, I'm not challenging you. It's just I'm curious. I don't remember. I don't remember ever knowing his last name for a long time, even in the comics. But that's a good question. I don't know if they did or not. I don't know. Old business for next time, maybe. Yes, Somebody absolutely. let us know. Let us know. I'm sure there's a Batman fanatic. I'm a big Batman fan, but that's that's a that's a good question. I mean, I know, I know that's his name, and they right. used it oh, yeah. things. But did they use it in the 1960 series? I don't know. Uh, so this movie was written by Dwight V. Babcock. 
I am so bad about interrupting you today, but uh, one other person I want to mention that was in it was Bill Goodwin. He played Lieutenant Larry Brooks. He's kind of the main cop in this. The reason I want to mention him is because we have another connection here among all these people, and that's Alfred Hitchcock. Martin Kozlek was in Foreign Correspondent in 1940. Yes. yes. Bill Goodwin was in Spellbound in 45, and Alan Napier was in Marnie in 1964. Did not know he was in Marnie. That's interesting. I, yes, I, I was aware of Foreign Correspondent. Uh, I guess I've seen him in other things. He, he's, he's definitely an actor that if you watch anything from that time period of films, he pops up from time to time. Okay, so written by Dwight B. Babcock and George Bricker. Now, Dwight Babcock wrote The Mummy's Curse, House of Dracula, She-Wolf of London, and The Brute Man. Did a lot of TV work. George Bricker wrote The Devil Bat which starred Bela Lugosi. He also wrote House of Dracula and She-Wolf of London. So he worked with Dwight Babcock uh, on a couple of other projects and also worked with director Gene Yarborough, who directed The Devil Bat, She-Wolf of London, The Brute Man, also King of the Zombies. Did lots of TV work. And yes, we have, uh, we have him to thank for Hillbillies in a Haunted House, <laughs> which is a movie I have to see sooner than later. So definitely they, they were familiar working with each other. And because of the time period that these were made, I mean, it sounded like they went straight from... House of Horrors was made first. It was made in September of 45. And then The Brute Man was made in November. So they had about a month off. And that's when he filmed Spider-Woman Strikes Back, or Rondo filmed it. Dwight Babcock and George Bricker and, and uh, Gene Yarbrough, I would assume, just went from one film to the next. And again, the music, I'll have to mention, this time the musical director was the great Hans Salter. He had some common sense to leave some quiet spots and not have yes. the music overwhelming him. But again, it's same stock music uh, of his, Frank Skinner, Dimitri Tiomkin, William Lava, and Paul Sawtell. Those are, I think, most of them familiar names to uh, musical scores for these kind of movies during this era. Well, and I will say this is a better made film. Oh, than, my goodness, yes. And, you know, interestingly that, it, you know, Universal made both films, but uh, House of Horrors is really leaps and bounds a better production. Uh, and so, again, I, I guess we have to give credit to uh, the writers and, and the uh, director because clearly they wrote a better script, although still weak, but they wrote a much better script and uh, a much better direction of the film. Uh, and it, too, was part of the original shock theater package of uh, 52 films that were released to television stations in the 1950s. And as a movie, that has been much more readily available over the years as well. I think it was in that original VHS set. I can remember the cover. Yeah, it was towards the end, but it was uh, it was part of that original VHS set. Then it kind of it, it became actually one of the last movies released on DVD, uh, and I think actually this is the last set that Universal did. It was the set they worked with uh, Turner Classic Movies, the Universal Cult Horror Collection, that became a. I don't know if it was a burn-on-demand originally. It is now, so it's still available. It's a pricey set, unfortunately. Uh, I, I think at the time, the set went for maybe 40 50 well, I can actually want more, more than that. I think it went more to like 50 or 60 bucks. You could get House of Horrors individually, but and you still can, but it's $20 for the movie, and there's like nothing extra on it but the movie, which I think in this day and age, is pricey 
for uh, for a film. And I believe, if you want to go a cheaper route, I believe I had rented it on Netflix, the DVD version of Netflix where you get them in the mail in the red envelopes. So you could get it that way too if you want to watch it. Yeah, and I think that uh, I, I don't know I, that I actually I did not buy that set. I had all the movies already. At least either I had them on VHS or I had them uh, on uh, DVD. And so I I just couldn't part with the money. I think it was like $60 at the time. And I think that just seemed awful high, even though the movies that are part of that set are not necessarily top tier. Murders in the Zoo is a really good movie. I Uh, like that one. And that's clearly the best of the set. The Mad Ghoul, it's fun, but it's, it's not a classic. The other two films, have you ever seen Mad Doctor of Market Street? No. Or the Strange Case of Dr. Rx? No. And those are both ones I've asked. Well, I'm asking you today for Strange Case. I know you have it in your binder. Yes, yes. I, I saw it last time you asked if I wanted it, and I go, no, I don't want to watch it. Well, now I do. Yeah. Um, but uh, Mad Doctor of Market Street, I've asked you before. I don't think you have that one, do you? I do have that one. You do? Yes. It's, <sighs> it's right behind you on the shelf, Ooh. actually. Those are fun films. I'm trying to remember who stars in those. I'm thinking George Zuko or Lionel Atwill, one of the two. I want to say maybe Lionel Atwill stars in those. But yeah, those are fun films. I wouldn't mind having a better copy because the ones I have are bootleg copies off of original prints. And those were films that never did get released on VHS. Uh, Murders in the Zoo did. Mad Ghoul did. But Mad Doctor and, and The Strange Case never did get a VHS release. So I don't know. I mean, it depends on how much you really are a true universal film collector it you know if if you can't find copies anywhere else that's going to be the way to go the price has gone down a little bit but still i don't know i think it's still going for about 45 dollars on amazon for a a box set that has nothing else with it i don't know i guess you're getting five film i don't know i guess it's up to up to how much uh you're willing to to part from uh your funds for these films this movie reminded me an awful lot of Mystery of the Wax Museum. It did. Yeah, it did. I, I could see that. The poor man's Mystery of the Wax Museum. <laughs> yeah, it, well, and interest, yeah, it's because, of course, Marcel Delange was a kind of a, a lower level artist, I guess. You know, he, he certainly did good work, but F. Holmes Harbin did not look that kind No, of he called it tripe. Yes, he was not a big fan of his work. And that, of course, is what kind of sets the stage for the film because we have the creeper ends up kind of stumbling upon Marcel Delange. Well, Delange, and I wanted to ask you this because he goes down to the docks and the creeper's in the water and he helped, I say he saved his life. I don't know if it was that severe. But was Delange like going to commit suicide was he gonna jump in the water or was he just there reflecting on how cruel the world was he was definitely he was definitely upset so i would assume why do people go down to the to the docks i mean usually to take a you know take a dive so i'm thinking it's possible that he was contemplating it but then stumbles upon the creeper and then stumbles upon this plan to use the creeper well okay so not even i guess he's not even really aware of it well i don't know so this delange guy he's a he's an interesting character first of all he's got quite a temper i mean when someone says they don't like his work what does he do he destroys it that's a little overreaction yes then he he rescues the creeper and this just seems off to me you look at rondo hatton do you say magnifique 
the perfect Neanderthal man. And, and he thinks that that will be the sculpture that will, you know, rescue from him from obscurity. I don't really know. I don't really make that connection that that would be a sculpture that would, you know, save him. But then he never really, I mean, he knows what he's doing. It's kind of a subtle performance, but he mentions, just happens to mention where the art critic lives and kind of sees Rondo's reaction. I think even from the first time, he's doing it purposely. He's not telling him, go kill him, but he knows that's what's going to happen. And sure enough, that's what Rondo does. He goes, you know, this man brought him in and saved his life and is taking care of him. He's going to go act on his part to get rid of the people that are causing him grief. Yeah, I mean, definitely from the, from the you know, as the murders progress, I mean, it becomes more of a less covert go out and kill. You know, I mean, he's, he's just not covering up his intent. But I can see that with the first one. I mean, he definitely kind of mentions it. And then once he sees that the creeper is doing these things for him, then it's like, oh, well, here's a list. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know there's that... There's that school teacher. No, it, it, but it becomes this point where, you know, he, he wants to uh, eliminate his critics. It's interesting. So you have the commercial artist Steve Morrow, right? Uh, and, and for you, as the whole thing about the, the models that he had, the detective is wanting to ask questions. I, I was just sitting there watching that. It's like, you know, this day and age, we're so aware of these things. But, you know, the detective comes in and he's just blatantly... You know, saying, you know, hey, uh, this is what I want. And, and she's just like, oh, you can get me ahead of the game. Very dated, and especially in, in within the events of the last year, I think. Yeah. These things kind of make you cringe a little bit. You know, so, obviously a different time. Yeah, but. This artist is a painter, and he's painting magazine covers of women clothed. This one's in, I think, a tennis outfit with a racket over her shoulder. And my goodness, how many days does she have to stand there and pose for him to, to do that painting? But it, And it's funny, the paintings to me sort of look like a Norman Rockwell painting, kind of the art was, yeah, they do. was very yeah, similar. Yeah. But anyway, he's poo-pooed by the art critics because of doing magazine covers with these women. And yeah, the detective comes when he's implicated in it. And that's... Well, I guess that's not the main romance of the story, but that's not just a plot point they drop. It It's consistent through the movie that this detective is hitting on this woman and trying to get with her, and she's game for it. I, I just, I, it struck me as funny. Again, I think the what we have now, there's just an awareness, in, in, especially within the last year. I, I think when you see something like that, it's just almost like, oh, how quaint things were back in the 1940s. Definitely a different world today. And I have a question for you. So the I guess the female lead is what was her name? Joan Medford. Uh, Joan Medford, Virginia yes. Gray. So and she's like the Glenda Farrell character from Mystery of the Wax Museum. She's kind of involved and she's going investigating on her own and all of that. Was she an art critic or was she just a reporter or what what was she? I think I don't know that she was an art critic per se. I think she was more so like uh you know, you see them in, in movies and such as that maybe like an agent of sorts or mm. maybe someone who connects, you know, oh, yeah. artists to someone who's collecting art or whatever, you know. That makes I think sense. that was kind of like the go-between. And my other question related to that is where in the heck did this take place? Because there's an awful lot of art critics in this oh, 
doesn't seem like a big city, but I guess it could be part of a big city. Uh, yeah, I guess. I guess. Well, it had docks, so I mean, yeah, maybe it was New York. Maybe it was New York. Uh, that and there was would be the impression that I got yeah. because, yeah, with that many art critics, yeah, not a small midwestern town by any means. I think it had to have been someplace. Although it is a group of art critics diminishing in size once the creeper gets to work. Well, there's definitely going to be uh, some uh, some one ads, I think, out there from the, from the art world. So, Wanted art critic. Yes. I don't know if I'd, I'd accept that job offer based on the predecessors. It's kind of like, do you want to be Robin? You know, I don't know. The, the past, you know, Robins to Batman don't necessarily have the best track record. Right. Well, I don't know. I, so, what, I, you know, I enjoyed this. Yeah, movie. I did too. Uh, you know, again, this was... The end of Universal's primary horror output, and although they intended for one more film, then with the Brute Man, obviously things would be changing. I, I enjoyed it. It certainly is is not the best work that they did, but if you consider other horror films that came out in 1946, there wasn't a lot of competition. We'll be talking about that here in a second. About well, why don't why don't we go? Anything else to say about this? We we haven't done our thing where we find out what's going on in the world in 1946. You want to go ahead and do that? Yeah, let's do that. I, I think you know. Uh, I would recommend House of Horrors. I think it's worth tracking yeah. down. I mean, you're going to have to pay a little bit more for it, but if you can find it cheaper, I would definitely jump on it. I think it's uh, a good addition to your collection. Yeah, and after we well talk made. about Brute Man, I want to see. I want to talk about which one of those two you liked better. I see. I've already forgotten about. The Spider-Woman Strikes Back. Yeah, it's clearly the lesser of the three <laughs> films. Okay, so what was going on in 1946? Well, let's talk about films first. Not a lot of horror films in 1946. Uh, we had Boris Karloff's Bedlam, which uh, would be one of the last horror films he would do for a while. I don't think he did another full-blown horror film until... Uh, the early 1950s when he did, uh, I'm trying to think what, Black Castle, possibly. I'm looking at my shelf and that's not going to help me at all because it's in a box set. But I'm thinking, you know, there was a gap there of, of about maybe five or six years between horror films for, for Karloff, unless I'm skipping something. There was The Beast with Five Fingers with Peter Lorre, which we, you know, talked about in last month's episode. Definitely a low-level horror film called Strangler of the Swamp. Valley of the Zombies, which I believe stars John Carradine, which kind of tells you what you need to know about that film. And then uh, Shock with Vincent Price, which is one of his first real suspense thrillers. Not necessarily one of his better films, but it's not a bad movie. It's public domain, so you can find it very easy. Not a lot of, of horror output in 1946. And if you look at some of the other films that came out that year, there's definitely some true classics. Uh, the top grossing film of the year was Walt Disney's Song of the South, which is a film that is almost impossible to find these days because it is uh, a bit controversial because of some of its racial uh, undertones. And I have a copy of that film, but Disney has never released that commercially in the United States. I don't think it's had a theatrical run since maybe the early 70s. It has been released over in Europe, I think the only way to get it here in the States is through the bootleg market. And there is a site that has been selling copies of this film for quite a few years. I'm surprised that Disney hasn't shut it down, which tells me that Disney probably knows about it and is happy with this site getting copies of it out because I think Disney would like to see the movie get some recognition. It's got the classic song Zippity Doo Die in it, 
again, it's a movie that is, uh, it's got some, some, some scenes that are a bit hard to watch in this day and age. And, and so the movie has been shelved and probably will never get an official release. But it was the top grossing film in 1946. <laughs> Other top grossing films are The Best Years of Our Lives, uh, which was the uh, Academy Award winning film that year. A movie called Duel in the Sun. The Postman Always Rings Twice. Actually, no, I think The Postman Always Rings Twice was that best film of the year. I'm not trying to think now, or was Best Years of Our Lives. Anyway, I think it was Best Years of Our Lives was best film. Best director that year was Frank Capra for It's a Wonderful Life, and best actor was Gregory Peck for The Yearling. New house was $5,600, and you could buy a new car for just over $1,000, and gas was only 15 cents a gallon. We miss those days. Hmm. Uh, the League of Nations folded, as it was considered greatly unsuccessful in preventing World War II, and the United Nations would rise from its ashes in 1946. Meanwhile, as a result of World War II, the International War Crimes Tribunal was continuing to uh, sentence various Nazi war criminals to, uh, I think in most cases, I think it was a life imprisonment for a lot of them, and I think some of them were sentenced to death. So this is kind of interesting. Bikinis go on sale <laughs> in July in Paris, and this is funny. I just watched one of the Marvel one-shots, Agent Carter, uh, which was set after World War II, and there's a, a, a scene at the end of that in which the character of uh, Dum Dum Dunnigan is fascinated as Howard Stark has a couple of bikini, you know, gals in bikinis around the pool, and Dum Dum asks, what, what are these things? And he says, they're called bikinis. He says, they come from Paris. <laughs> so I, I thought that was interesting that I would see that then as a little footnote of what happened in 46. Tupperware made its debut, which of course then... I guess, made a lot of suburban housewives <laughs> a lot of money for many decades. The Mensa Society was created. The very first Cannes Film Festival took place. From a political standpoint, Harry S. Truman, a native of Missouri, was the United States president. Musically, two of the top musicians of the day were Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby, while two other music musicians were just beginning their career, B.B. King and Dean Martin. That's what was going on in 1946. Hmm. That music part reminds me when we start talking about the brute, man. There's something I want to say about the music of the time. Okay, well, let's just dive into the brute, man. All right. As a serial killer called the Creeper snaps the spines of his victims all over town, an ineffective police force feels political pressure to apprehend him. Meanwhile, it's revealed that the Creeper has a connection with Clifford and Virginia Scott, and there may be a method to his madness. Made in November of 1945, not released until almost a year later, October 1st, 1946, many, many months after Rondo Hatton had passed away. It was made by Universal, but was released by PRC Pictures, Universal selling the movie to PRC, and this was, of course, at the time that Universal was going through some changes, and they reportedly there were some who felt like they were exploiting Rondo's illness and were bothered by the fact that that they were trying to create this character, you know, the creeper and, and, and publicizing him as a real monster. And Universal decided to back away from the film and went ahead and sold it to PRC. 
Universal's name would continue to appear on the production number 1479, continued to appear on production stills, but PRC Pictures released the film. I have a little bit more on that. I actually have reviewed this movie. It's not, it was on a previous blog. I need to post it on Classic Horrors. So this was when Universal was merging with International to become okay. Universal International, which I think is interesting because so many of those great Atomic Age movies oh, yeah, came yeah, from Universal yeah. International. Creature from the Black um, Lagoon. Yeah. yeah, and they supposedly had adopted a policy against releasing any more B-movies. Yes. But that is kind of suspect because there were a ton of B-movies that came out in, in the months you know around that time where you say some film experts believe that Universal just wanted to distance themselves from it because they didn't want to tarnish their image with the, I guess, exploitation of Rondo and the, the type of movie that it was. If they had just shelved it and never released it, it would have, they would have taken a loss, but they sold it to PRC for $125,000. And the rest is history. Well, The Brute Man has been kind of forgotten then. I mean, Universal made it, but they sold the rights to PRC, which meant the Brute Man was never included in the Shock Theater package, made available to uh, television stations, because technically Universal didn't own the rights to it anymore. The movie's availability over the years has been kind of hit and miss. It was actually one of the very first Universal films released on DVD. Well, we can still call it a Universal film. Image Entertainment released it in 1999, uh, that DVD has now gone out of print, but you can still get it for about $25 if you look. It's an old snap case, not a lot to it. Right now, it's available on Amazon Prime, so you can certainly watch it on streaming. There is a copy of The Brute Man available on DVD on Amazon from a company called Mr. Fat W Video. Hmm. Bootleg just screams all over this. Really? And, and there are some bootleg companies that are certainly popping up more frequently on Amazon, which I find interesting. Whether or not that's just a, a direct burn of the original 1999 DVD. I mean, look, the copy looked good of what I had, but like I said, that DVD is long out of print. So it's a little harder to find. I think easier than Spider-Woman Strikes Back. Buyer beware on that version they've got on Amazon DVD right now. I mean, obviously the Amazon Prime is probably going to be the print that's equal to what we saw in the 99 DVD. And that you can find that DVD out there. You just might have to look a little bit. Rondo Hatton, again, playing the Creeper. Not necessarily the same Creeper, I don't think, but maybe. Uh, or a version of it. Tom Neal appeared as Clifford Scott. And Jan Wiley appeared as Virginia Rogers Scott. And I, I didn't really have a lot on, on either Tom Neal I Yeah, and... This was interesting, and I wanted to make this note on any of the actors except for Rondo Hatton. I couldn't find any other genre uh, films or connections to make. Yeah. Uh, well, except for Jane Addams, who played Helen, the blind woman. Oh, okay. Okay. She was in House of Dracula. She was the nurse. Oh, yes, the nurse. Yes. yes. yes I yes. can't remember her name. but And also in a movie called Masterminds. From 1949, it's I don't know yeah, it, but it's that one. supposedly the genre. And she was also in the Batman and Robin serial with the others. She played Vicki Vale. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, I forgot so, that. And I just want to say, she's a pretty woman, Jane yes. Adams. I like her. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. She really was. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, this film felt like a Universal film. I mean, oh yeah, it, it certainly had that. You know, 
it just the only thing it was lacking was the Universal logo at the beginning. And there was a rumor I remember reading years ago that there's a print out there with you know the Universal logo at the beginning. There's no way that that would be possible because Universal sold it before it ever was released. If in fact you see a print out there with the Universal logo, that's clearly been tacked on at the beginning mm. of it. If PRC was always the one that released it, there's no Universal print out there. Written by Dwight Babcock, George Bricker, and an M. Coates Webster, uh, directed by uh, Gene Yarborough, so essentially the same production crew behind House of Horrors. The only difference being M. Coates Webster was involved in the writing of the script and uh, lots of B films. His or her credit. I'm going to assume his. I didn't see any other really films that stood out, a lot of uh, lesser-known work. So, yeah, I would assume that, again, that this being made just two months or a month after, probably after uh, House of Horrors, that the production crew just kind of went, went straight from one film to the next. And weren't the credits, like, almost the same? Yes. They had a, a, a the shadowed, shadow image of the creeper and walking behind a, the credits. I think that was intentional because, remember, they were trying to create a creeper series of films. So this would have been technically the second film in the series. I mean, you can count the Creeper character in Sherlock Holmes, but they call this the third Creeper film. But this would have been really the second film in the series. And it's basically his origin story. I mean, how he came... I, I and, see, yeah, it really is. I mean, it, it certainly is, Is I think, as we talked about, it does could take place before House of Horrors. But what is really disturbing about this to me, and maybe it's one of the reasons Universal wanted to distance themselves from it, is it's eerily similar to his real life i mean he was a handsome football player in high school he was popular he didn't go to war but still uh, you know a a gaseous experiment caused him to develop his disease i just that's a little too close for comfort for me Uh, yeah i mean if you know who the his story i agree and i think that probably did play a part in why they eventually needed to back off of this a little bit it's like okay we really are capitalizing on this poor man's disfigurement and trying to, to make him a villain. Again, I'd love to know what Rondo thought at the time. He might have just been happy to be getting an acting gig and maybe he just wasn't thinking about it too much. But I'd have to think that maybe deep down inside, he, he really wasn't happy doing this kind of thing. It was, again, capitalizing on what ultimately was you know a horrific incident in his life. But very similar as far as overall production, again, and I think it's because you've got the same script writers and the same director. I mean, it definitely felt like a series. You know, I mean, these films, you know, watch them back to back. Very similar in, in style and structure, almost too similar, I think, in some ways. House of Horrors reminded me of Mystery of the Wax Museum. Did you catch any Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein references in this? And I don't know if reference is the right word, but for yeah. example, he here he is, this disfigured monster, stumbles into the apartment of a blind woman. She can't see him, so they okay. become friends. So that reminded me of Bride of Frankenstein. And then even later, when Mrs. Scott is sitting at her table brushing her hair or putting up on her makeup or something and the creeper sneaks in behind her that reminded me of frankenstein with uh, uh, yeah. going in on the wedding night i can see that yeah yeah actually i i thought it was kind of odd i mean helen was she just had no problem with somebody just walking into and it did kind of seem like that that now that you say it the, the old guy from Bride of Frankenstein is like, you know, ah, hey, friend, I, I've been looking <laughs> exactly. for a friend. 
And bless his heart, poor creeper, he wants to get her money for her operation so that she can see. And this is focused from his point of view, whereas the other one wasn't. I mean, he's he's killing people to get revenge for the accident that disfigured him. But he's also, and I don't think he even meant to kill the jewelry shop guy when he took the brooch. No. Uh, but... No. Gosh, the guy didn't want him to walk out and come back tomorrow and pay. You know, can't operate a business like that. So there's there's a lot more humanity to to him in this movie, whereas I think in House of Horrors he's he is certainly just more of a you know I mean because he really has no reason to to kill those art critics other than kind of paying back Delange, who's clearly giving him food and giving him a place to stay. But I found that there was a lot more humanity to, to 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 his character in this movie. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I would say the Brute Man is my is my favorite of the three films. I uh, yeah, that's. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, you know, I mean, there's certain parts of House of Horrors I think that maybe was a little bit more polished than the Brute Man, but I like the humanity of of the Creeper character a little bit. It makes him adds an extra dimension, I think, to to his character that we don't necessarily see in House of Horrors. I mean, there's actually some humanity to the character of, of Mario in Spider-Woman's right. fact that's not present in House of Horrors, even though that movie is clearly the lesser of the three films. But I don't know, Brute Man is a movie that I think doesn't get a lot of love because it's just often, it's a universal film, but it's not. It's not part of their box sets. They don't really talk about it. Its availability has been hit and miss over the years. And I think it's just a film that tends to be forgotten a little bit. When everyone thinks Rondo Hatton, they think of House of Horrors because that's the easily, you know, easiness of the three films to find. And no one really talks about Spider-Woman Strikes Back because it's a film that is almost impossible to find. I think I like this a little bit more as well. What I like about this is that whole level of the police department and the pressure from the public and the mayor to catch the creeper a little bit of a little bit of political intrigue and inner workings and which i thought was a is realistic you know i thought that fit better with the story than you could say that the similar storyline in house of horrors is the other art critic and his romance with the girl and them sort of investigating and then the cop that's hitting on the girl that doesn't quite fit as well it's a little more like thematically disjointed yeah and i think the overall tone of brute man works better with its subplot um, i can see that yeah i agree and i may be looking entirely too deeply at it <laughs> but well i mean and these are three films that you know there's not i mean we we're taking a a deep as deep a dive i think as you could go on these three right films. i mean these are not universal's best it's coming at the end of the universal reign of horror films in this particular era we would go several years before Universal would start making movies again. By that point, it's the 1950s, and you're talking Creature from the Black Lagoon is a whole different type of film, and certainly leaps and bounds above the Rondo Hatton films. But these are movies I think they tend to get forgotten. Certainly, The Brute Man does, and I think it's it's worth checking them out. It, I think so. I'd, I'd watch. I'd pretend they were in a series, and I'd watch Brute Man. And then I'd watch House of Horrors, and I wouldn't watch the other one. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree. Watch Brute Man first, and then House of Horrors. I think they go. That's a better way to watch it. Yeah, I can't recommend Spider Woman Strikes Back either. And then, uh, 
You know, obviously, you know, his role in, in Sherlock Holmes and the Pearl of Death is worth seeing because of the Sherlock Holmes series. I love that series of films. Maybe not the most faithful adaptations, uh, but Basil Rathbone is a lot of fun as Sherlock Holmes in that. I mean, all of those films are probably that time period. The best are the first couple of films, The Hound of the Baskervilles and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, because they're set in the 1800s. Sherlock Holmes in modern day, it kind of fluctuates depending on the movie, how obvious it is. I mean, obviously when he's fighting Nazis, yeah, it's 1940s. And that I struggle with that a little bit. I'm a purist. Sherlock Holmes needs to be in that time period. Although I like Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, there's just some exceptions. I think that certainly worth watching him in Pearl of Death, but again, that's more so because it's part of the Sherlock Holmes series. So, can we wrap up this part of our discussion then? Anything th- else to say? I think we can. I think uh, Ron O'Hatton's a, a fun excursion. I think once you get through all the Karloff and Lugosi films and you want to see uh, uh, something different, catch uh, some of these films with Ron O'Hatton. Absolutely. All right, we'll take a quick break and be right back. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic monsters, modern talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Welcome back. The Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards were started in 2002, and they are designed to honor the best in classic horror research, creativity, and film preservation. That said, Richard, I always struggle with the movies, TV shows, things like that, that aren't classic horror that are nominated. Now, I understand if you're a monster kid that these things, you know, monster kids like certain things, and they'll like some of the modern stuff. But I always struggle, you know, with what do I vote for? And I always look for some angle to tie it back to classic horror. Is that just me, or do you feel that way at all? No, I, I agree. It, it's it's tough because, and what constitutes as, as a classic horror, too. I mean, that's we're in 2018, and it, you could go back, if a film has been made 20 years ago, I mean, you know, that could be considered classic. So I don't know. It, it's I think it's up to interpretation, and, and clearly... They're wanting to recognize anything that is true classic, but they have definitely, they want to keep it, I think, topical for other audiences that certainly love contemporary horror. I mean, you and I both love contemporary horror, but it's not our go-to. I mean, if we're going to go to a desert island, I think we're going to take, you know, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, you know, over um, anything that may be done, you know, in the last 10 years or so. Yeah, well, the first category is Best Movie of 2017. So, 
you know, it, and, and there are some, the ones that I would consider out of the list, and there's maybe 20, 25 movies on the list, which basically is every movie that came out. Well, no, that's not true. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I would consider, I, I mean, the Bye Bye Man is on there. So. <laughs> the, the ones I'd consider of classic horror based on classics being 80s, late 70s, 80s, like you could stretch and say Alien Covenant. Um, you could say Blade Runner, you could say Cult of Chucky, uh, you could say Stephen King's It, you know, those I could sort of see because they have, they're, they're in an era that some people would call classic. Then there's ones that connect directly to more classic horror that you and I talk about. So Kong Skull Island, The Mummy, Shape of Water, War for the Planet of the Apes, those sort of have a connection to you know, what are truly yeah. my classics. So those are the ones I considered voting for. And in the end, I, I like uh, Shape of Water. I just think that's the closest thing to what really should have been part of the dark universe that should have been their Creature of the Black Lagoon, I think. Uh, that's, I actually had I not really thought about that, but I agree. I think that uh, that would have been a much better entry than I think. Uh, and that's that series, I guess, is officially dead. So I think they're considering that done again there's a lot of good films that came out last year you've got to kind of stretch it a little bit and just say you know what constitutes classic is is going to be up for interpretation and how far back and does it have to have a connection or does it just have to be a a good horror movie and and i think in, in order to keep the the awards topical i think you've got to expand and and say well yeah our focus is on classic horror but let's do this or let's what's the best you know hour of television in the last year you're going to have to go beyond classic yeah and i guess that that, you know it's our perspective as monster kids classic horror fans how we view those and they're if i think more about it like away from the purpose of these awards and just like they're taking a poll among people that would vote for these things what did you think the best movie was so you know that might that would definitely change my vote uh, and I probably wouldn't go for Shape of Water. I'm not sure what I would vote for. What did you vote for in this? I think I went with Shape of Water, actually. I voted very early on, and then I kind of regret that because there's a few categories I think I would have voted a little bit differently as I became more aware of some stuff. But yeah. I, I did think I did go with Shape of Water. I only voted a couple of days ago. I debate, and I want to try to look up as much as possible. You were probably more confident than I was. I think I was going more with my gut reaction yeah. early on, and I and I didn't want to not vote. That did happen, I think, a couple of years ago, where I, I got lost in, in real life, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, I missed the deadline. And so this mental thing is like, oh, i got to vote now, you know, because what happens if things get crazy? And what's your stance on, did you vote in every category, or do you feel like you have to be knowledgeable of everything to vote? No, I, I did not vote in every category. I didn't now, I, I would vote if I if I knew a particular title, but I wasn't maybe familiar with some of the others. I would vote for something I knew. Uh, so I didn't feel I had to be aware of everything that was nominated. But if I didn't know any of the items that were nominated, uh, I would not vote in that category. I didn't want to just pick something randomly because I didn't think that would be fair. And as far as TV presentation, best presentation of 2017, it's similar to the movies. I mean, we actually had an Exorcist TV series. Two shows referenced Star Trek, The Orville, 
Yeah. And uh, an episode of Black Mirror called The USS Callister. So those I consider, you know, related. Again, in my twisted mind, that's maybe Stranger Things, again, if you're considering the 80s part of classic, and then since it takes place in the 80s. But I think, for me, Feud, that FX miniseries, was the best about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, especially. I love, 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 love TV movies or miniseries where they recreate the filming of a movie that you're familiar with. So uh, when they were doing that with Trog and whatever happened to Baby Jane, that that was just great. I loved that. Where were some of the other ones nominated? Uh, we had American Horror Story, uh, Doctor Who, Twice Upon a Time, Game of Thrones. Now, and see, I don't know why that's even a nominee. I guess dragons. It's, <laughs> it's the fantasy aspect, and this is this is actually an interesting conversation that I've had with with my fiance. Is like what I said. There's this huge umbrella, and under that umbrella, I said you have horror and sci-fi and fantasy and suspense thrillers. And I said a lot of times, you know, she's like, "Well, that's not a horror movie," because yeah, I, I I think talking about things that well actually I think it was this month she said well you know these are more suspense movies I don't know if I would consider them horror and I'm like there's a lot of blurred lines I think uh I think and so fantasy definitely has a spot and so it's on the fringe also Handmaid's Tale Stand Against Evil and The Walking Dead yeah and I'm trying to I I honestly don't remember which one that Mm. I voted for in this category I I'm I can't remember that particular Walking Dead episode. I'm puzzled now. I'm trying to remember what I voted for. I can't remember on that one. Okay. Actually, it's Category 8, but I kind of relate it to this. It's the best independent film. So these are movies that had limited release or you could only get on video or streaming. Uh, I didn't know a lot of these, but this is where uh, I'm sure you're in my favorites come up, Demon with the Atomic Brain and Theseus and the Minotaur. Yes, those were my top two because certainly made in the style of classic horror. Christopher Mims' Demon with the Atomic Brain is more of the uh, 50s and 60s sci-fi horror. And then Joshua Kennedy's Theseus the Minotaur was like an old Harryhausen uh, movie. So it was between those two for me. Um, and I wasn't familiar with a lot of these, so I didn't even make well, really connections with any of the others. But there was a couple in, in this. This category bothered me. I don't know. In my mind, when I hear independent film release, I don't think it's fair to put a Christopher R. Mim film or a Joshua Kennedy film against something like the Limehouse Gollum. The Devil's Candy, a ghost story. Yes, I agree. The Limehouse Gollum, uh, I have not seen. I've seen the trailer. I love it. I bought the DVD, did a blind buy at Walmart. In my mind, maybe that was technically an independent film, but it stars Bill Nighy. That's a... You know, a well-known star, well, and I have a, and, and it's at Walmart. It's 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 a it's a mainstream release. It shouldn't be an independent film. I don't know. And I have trouble with a lot of the categories too, because even I, when there's a level of professionalism and commercialism where you know there's money behind it and they're producing a polished project, I think that's different than someone sort of doing it on their own. The category I was amazingly nominated for is the same way for website i don't consider that i compete with dread central or bloody disaster or whatever yeah, you know you know what i mean so i i, I think it, i think some of these categories and not to 
to get down on the Rondo Award. Oh no 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 no! But I think that there, I think there's some tweaking that that could be done because I feel like, quote unquote, professional artists or contributors are going against, uh, you know, more, you know, I don't want to say less professional, but more uh, amateur or less mainstream. Uh, contributors, and like you said, it's not fair for you to be going up against Dread Central. I think that there should be some tweaking of the categories. Maybe some of these categories need to be split. Maybe with instead of having so many nominees in one category, truly split it and have less nominees, but a more narrowed down representation in a category that truly represents what they are, and not have them go up against a more mainstream film like A Ghost Story or The Limehouse Column or something like those lines. And again, not getting down on the Ronos, I'm just saying that's the criteria I make when voting. I always try to favor the underdogs, the the people that are putting their heart and soul in it and not necessarily money. I mean, last year I think uh, Trailers from Hell won as best multimedia site. That means Trailers from Hell was going against Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio is very professional, but... You know, there's a difference there. There is a difference, and and that's, you know, I I um, you know, I find it amazing. B movie cast has been going since 2006. It is still going, even after Vince left us two years ago. Um, that that it never, you know, I mean, Vince got that the 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 Ronda Award after his death. B movie cast should have been recognized, but it, it was going up against more professional podcasts. The content of what the B-movie cast. Maybe it wasn't always the most professional, you know, from a production standpoint, but what was discussed in that podcast is is really why Derek went on to do Monster Kid Radio, why he departed from Mail Order Zombie. Vince's work on that was, was you know, one of the key things behind why I'm sitting here now with you. I mean, it it, it was a an early part of my my entry into the podcast world and so I, I i think some of these categories unfortunately there's people who really should be winning awards but they're they're losing out to a more commercialized site who are certainly doing good work and should be recognized as well but when you've got x amount of dollars to promote this site or what have you versus somebody who you know is just maybe word of mouth to me, it, it's it's apples and oranges, and, and I think there should be a bit more. I don't know. I think there should be some of these sites, some of the uh, categories need to be tweaked. Yeah. So let's maybe shift gears a little bit and talk about some of those categories, maybe instead of going through the whole thing. But unless, did you have anything from best documentary, best short that you would want to mention or call out? Um, you know, the the best documentary. One is is something I don't think I'd seen any of those documentaries. I thought that I was surprised. I think at that category that there was a a King Kong documentary that didn't get nominated in that one. I remember seeing it on Vimeo last year. I think it was nominated last year. Was it in last? Was it the previous year? I maybe think that's, so. Maybe that's why I didn't see it. Uh, the Batman and Bill documentary kind of is something I've heard multiple people talk about. In fact, Joe Barlow from Cinema Slate podcast many years ago, my friend, he actually just saw this and, and highly recommended it. It has to do with about the other creator of Batman, Bill Finger, who was not given credit for many, many years while Bob Kane was con- considered kind of the, the sole 
creator of Batman unjustly. So, but yeah, that's that's about the only one that I was familiar with. Yeah, and the seventy eight fifty two, I I voted for it. I shame shame on me. I haven't seen it, but it's about Psycho and the making of the shower scene, and I just sort of had to vote for that. I know it's going to be wonderful and. Even sight unseen, I think I'm going to buy a copy of that. I'm sure it's worthy of winning. There was a really cool short film, if you didn't watch, I want to point out, called Kong, Steel, and Love by Tom Woodruff. Did you watch that? No, I did not. It's on YouTube. It's just a lovely, lovely film about the the original King King Kong armature is in it and comes back to life and... Uh, it's, yeah, it's on my list. To yeah, see. it's I, sweet, I, I, sweet, sweet. That one, that one interested me. There was also, why is there cardboard in Dracula for some reason? Yeah, you know, I liked that, but this is another one of those things. That's like a web series, and it was an episode of a web series with just a guy there talking, and oh, it, 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 I kind of, I guess, I am no, I don't know. It, it was just a different type i wouldn't call that a short film no anyway no i i, I yeah okay yeah we could go on and on yes, that, yes. So. uh so that's really about all the vi- the uh, movie tv type things but then there's the whole home video categories and now we start really getting into where i think as these fit classic horror and you're pretty much picking favorites and most of these nominees i would at least consider classic horror and I don't have to go through that mental anguish of trying to decide. And there's a lot of repeats of these, like in the best classic DVD or Blu-ray, the best collection, the best restoration or upgrade, the best commentary track, best DVD extra. I like that there's repeat because I kind of like to spread the love. I have a handful that I really liked and by having them in different categories, I could vote for the different ones and you know, have everybody uh, get their share of the Rondo glory. I'll just tell you what I voted for, and, you know, you can comment or tell me what you voted for or whatever. For best classic DVD Blu-ray, I voted for Kaltiki, The Immortal Monster, 1959. It was a movie I had never seen, and of all the movies I watched that I had never seen, it really made me think, oh, why haven't I seen this? This is a great movie, and... That was the impression that was left with me. So I chose it as best classic DVD Blu-ray. I actually voted for that as well. I think that was a that was an excellent DVD. You know, I was looking at that list. I had I had Del, uh, Deluge from 1933. I had forgot that that came out on Blu-ray. I've been aware of this movie for many many years. Apparently, the sequence where the you know the city is under Deluge and and floodwaters and everything that supposedly is very cutting edge for the day. And then I just, I forgot about the film. So that's actually very high on my list of movies to purchase. Very intrigued about that one. And I actually also acquired The Lost World from Flickr Alley, which they do amazing work, mostly with silent films. I don't know if they do any any sound films. I think it's all uh, silent. Um, And The Lost World has been restored and for many years has, has been in lousy copies and partial prints and what have you. So I have yet to see that but I actually purchased it at the Kansas Silent Film Festival. Uh, and I have The Mad Magician. I bought that at last year's uh, Monster Bash and was a was a great uh, Blu-ray presentation. Um, a little pricey <laughs> for, my, for my, you know, Twilight Time. They love their Blu-rays. 
I don't know if that, you know, it didn't surpass Kaltiki for me. And then uh, Suspiria is another one that I, of course, I have yet to see the Blu-ray. I have it, but we did see it in the theaters. That year is wrong there. I'm looking at the list. They call it 1982. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually correct. Um, Kaltiki, in my mind, was, was classic. I mean, I guess Suspiria is classic again. It's that gray area. In my mind, Kaltiki, you know, was a fantastic release. Suspiria may very well be. It's a great steelbook, limited edition that I have, but I haven't dived into it yet, so I didn't feel it was right to vote for that over Kaltiki. What did you choose for best collection? I had, well, it wasn't really between any of them for me. It would have been if one of the collections had had a movie that should have been in there, uh, and I'm talking about the George Romero Between Night and Dawn, if it had had Martin, man, that would be hands down my vote. I, I actually did not vote in this category because I have not Paul Nashi collection. Uh, you know, Paul Nashi, I'm still diving into it and, and I want to know more about. And, and this is a collection that probably should have got my vote, but in, in the early stages of my Paul Nashi and, and I don't have that collection. So, and actually the movies listed here for the Paul Nashi collection are the movies from the Paul Nashi collection too. Yeah. So they've kind of got it switched. I wasn't really sure which I was voting for, but I, I went for Paul Nashi collection. You know, the Phantasm collection, while I'm aware of the films and have seen them all, I haven't seen that particular collection. So actually, yeah. And again, familiar with the, the films and the others, but not that particular collection. So I had to abstain. Best restoration or upgrade. What did you vote in that category? I I did, and I believe as I'm uh, going through that, I believe I voted for Kaltiki on that one. Adventures of Captain Marvel really interests me because I've heard a lot of good things about that release, and uh, of course Deluge, as we talked about, I, I'm very interested in that. But again, I haven't seen it yet. Lost World again, haven't seen it. The Lodger. I'm kind of intrigued as to to how much better Criterion could have done. I've got a copy of The Lodger from a public domain set that, I don't know, I thought it looked pretty good for for what it was. The Old Dark House, of course, I don't have the restored version. We talked about that a few months ago. Vampire, 1932, I... Do you mean Vampire? Vampire, yes, Vampire. I have not seen that Criterion. Uh, When we both watched that film in October... For our countdown to Halloween, I watched the Image Entertainment, and then after the fact, you gave me the Criterion on DVD. And The Vampire Bat, actually, I'm intrigued with that one. I don't know a lot about Film Detective, though. So I have a copy of The Vampire Bat from you know the early days of DVD, or maybe even recorded off-air. I'm aware, of, again, of all these other films, but I had to vote for Kaltiki because that's what I was familiar with. Yeah, and I actually, I voted for what I consider an, an odd one here. I voted for Don't Torture a Duckling, and that's because I had never heard of the movie, never seen it, probably never would have seen it unless it came out on a, a, a big fancy Arrow video Blu-ray, and uh, similar to Kaltiki, enjoyed it for the simple fact that I was available to it was available for me to watch like that, so um, I voted for that. And then apparently it was uh, difficult to restore. I guess the original prints were bad or something. So Interesting. Yeah. Best commentary track. This was tough for me because I've actually started listening to commentaries a lot more than I have in the past. Uh, did you vote for anything? 
Well, you know, and I'm just seeing something that I I missed I, on my blog the other day. I've been recognizing, you know, my friends who've been nominated in different categories. I missed that Rod Barnett was in Best Commentary Track. I don't think I listed that on my blog, so uh, my apologies on that. That was a, an oversight on my part. I know that Rod Barnett did provide commentary along with Troy Gwynn for the Paul Nashie collection because I think Rod Barnett is the the Paul Nashie expert. I did not because uh, I very rarely listen to commentary tracks. Uh, I usually will go through the extras, but I very rarely do commentary tracks. Yeah, I actually did several. Like I said, I liked Troy Howarth. He always does great commentaries. He did Don't Torture a Duckling and who did Kaltiki Tim Lucas from Video Watchdog. They always do great commentaries, but I voted for 1 million BC, a gentleman named Toby Roan. To me, a commentary helps me, in some cases, appreciate movies that I don't think I really appreciate just because of what I learn about it. And I thought that uh, Toby Roan did a a good job of, of helping me appreciate 1 billion BC. DVD Extra... I want to say that I voted for Kaltiki on this one. I'm, I'm going through the list. Uh, I'm and beyond intrigued, though. I will say, I, well, I normally don't listen to commenta- commentary tracks. I'm intrigued that with Adventures of Captain Marvel, they had 10 different commentators for each of the 12 chapters. Oh, yeah. I think that's a, a unique take. Uh, and then uh, uh, I'm very interested in The Lost World the high-def restoration of the 1913 Willis O'Brien short, The Ghost of Slumber Mountain, is an extra on that. Haven't seen it yet. Uh, I kind of chuckled at the the two Three Stooges shorts in 3D as an extra on The Mad Magician. Yeah, I guess technically when they do that, that's an extra. But in my mind, that has really nothing to do with the film. It's just, oh, we have some 3D shorts. Let's throw them on there. So, yeah. And I was intrigued in the half-hour Ballyhoo feature, Aside from the Depths, 40 Years of Suspiria, but, or should we say Suspiria? Suspiria. <laughs> People who listen to us long enough will know that reference. Anyway, I mean, I haven't seen that yet. So Yeah, that, that's really what I voted for because I definitely wanted Suspiria to win something, and uh, I think that this is the category I chose it for. I think that's about all for the visual arts. Uh, we can get into books and magazines and things now. Uh, Book of the Year. Uh, did you vote for that? You, I know you got a couple of these books last year. I voted for the uh, Art of Horror Movies, which is an amazing book. Posters, paintings, and essays. Uh, that That's a really incredibly well-done book. Highly recommend that. And then I think that may have been the only one that I actually... I'm scanning here, and I think that's the only book that I actually have. Rich... You are aware that you can write in nominees, aren't you? Uh, I am actually. No, actually, no. That actually, you are correct. I did. I did write in that category. Gosh, no, I actually did. Yeah, the unsung horrors is, is uh, your contribution to that. Which, okay, but let's. You don't toot your own horn enough. Those are amazing books. They're a little pricey. You've got to order from the UK. But let me tell you. They ship, like, I think someone's just waiting for that money to hit from PayPal, and bam, they're going to the post office. They, they come incredibly quick. I mean, they're, they're massive books, so really well, well worth the investment. So much 
information in there, beautifully laid out, great color photos. You've contributed now to Unsung Horrors and Son of Unsung Horrors. And the uh, Peter Cushing celebration. And the Peter Cushing celebration. I so desperately want, well, there was another book that came out before Unsung Horrors, Forgotten Movies. 70s Monster Memories? Something like that. Uh, yeah, good luck finding that. I it, it goes for like $75. Oh, somebody on the if you're lucky. I mean, Facebook than that. group keeps posting whenever they see it on eBay for some outrageous price. And I, I would love to have that uh, because they uh, they do some amazing work. And plus, I mean, you also wrote an article for the We Belong Dead magazine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I actually did. Um, thank you for, for calling me out on that. Good, good. You know, because that's actually the only other book, like I said, that I I'm actually have in my collection – uh, was the Art of Horror movies, which I highly recommend. But definitely, I hope that Unsung Horrors gets it. I think I know that there's some, there's definitely love for that that series, but I'd like to see more because I want to see more more books in that series, which I'm sure you would like because yes, uh, you continue to contribute. So uh, those are incredibly well done. The book category for me, I think, is my biggest shopping list because there's books oh, I didn't yeah, know yeah. came out, and I would love oh. Man, it's one of my New Year's resolutions every year, and every time I start to make some goals is to read more. I just, I really want to. But there's one book, and interestingly, it's called We Belong Dead, but it sounds really interesting. I, It's top yeah. of my list to order now. A Gay Perspective on the Classic Movie Monsters. A witty look at how classic horror films might appear from a gay point of view. So, I, you know, it sounds interesting to me. I'd like to watch that. You know, I know that, that, that. Nick Brown over at the B-Movie cast was looking at doing a werewolf filmography at one point and then i see that mcfarland did one and i wonder i haven't heard him talk about that and maybe he gave the reason why but i wonder if this has anything to do with why he maybe shelved that book project and speaking of nick um here's a write-in possibility i i didn't even think about the b uh b movie cookbook well that that was a write-in possibility um uh, Desmond Reddick from Dread Media Podcast uh, did Monster of Abominations, uh, which would be another uh, write-in. You know, Stephen Sullivan's last books came out at the end of 2016. I don't think he had any official releases last year, but I know that I, I wrote in last year for him for the uh, Manos, the Hands of Fate, and oh, the the other version of that he did because he did two different versions. Right. One was a straightforward adaptation. One was a more horrific adaptation more serious per se so and i'm sure we're probably missing some book that came out last year yeah that's a wish list there there's a lot of good books on that 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 i was not aware of that are definitely uh interesting me the universal terrors eight classic horror and sci-fi films by tom weaver i have that one definitely a well-known you've got that book yep that's another uh, mcfarland they always have high price tags but uh, I've got a Universal Horrors hardback set or book that is is a bible for me. There's more information in there than I'll, than I'll ever ever even attempt to be able to absorb. Well worth the price tag. So one of the reasons I don't read any that many books is because I read so many freaking magazines, <laughs> and it's kind of warming my heart to know that there are so many magazines out there that we can vote for. I get several of these regularly. Sometimes I don't. It, it depends on the cover. If it's got a great Mark Maddox cover or something, I'll be sure to get it. There's a couple that I get regularly. I get classic Monsters of the Movies. 
I get Horror Hound, Little Shop of Horrors, Monster Bash, Scary Monsters, and We Belong Dead, which I probably, if I didn't vote for that, would might be not writing for them anymore. So, I don't know, how did you, I know you read some of these too, how did you go about? Scary Monsters yeah. is always kind of a natural go-to. Uh, I used to really enjoy Video Watchdog, and have to admit that I, I got out of it towards... I guess in the last five years or so, partially because it just became a little harder to find. Uh, but then there was also a period of time where they were converting a lot of their old issues to digital, and it seemed like the output became irregular. And then all of a sudden, they they released their last issue last year, and I guess there was a lot of drama that that Tim Lucas there and, and his wife got involved in. There was some some financial issues and some printing issues, and they had a a printer who like just stopped printing and didn't give many notice. And they were able to do one last issue, uh, but they had to 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 pull some strings to make that happen. I don't know all the details, but that was a, a an amazing little digest of a magazine that I, I used to read with great regularity. And I think they were doing that in order to go digital, and I don't know if that's what they ended up doing. I, I know they have a great iPad app where you can get back issues. I don't know if they've produced anything new. I don't think they are producing anything new. That, that was the gist I got that, that was coming to an end. So, But I think there was some legal reasons behind that, and I don't know. I'd hate for them to have lost the rights to it, but it really kind of sounded that way. And I, I'm only speculating based on some things. I'm sure somebody out there may know more than I do, but it just sounded like they had to pull some strings to make that last issue happen. And it was a limited run too. So I actually had been trying to get a copy of it, but uh, I haven't, I haven't purchased a copy of it. It's not in stores. You have to uh, strictly buy it online. Hmm. So there was some distribution issues too. And I debated on this one. I actually voted for Little Shop of Horrors for the simple reason that every, it, it's not, it's only, I think, two times a year, yeah. but every issue is a book, basically. Well, I mean, and, yeah, the Frankenstein yeah, and, story was just, that was a book. Yeah, and that actually is our next category, best article. I knew I would be voting for it there, the epic untold saga behind Frankenstein, the true story by our friend Sam Irvin. But I also voted for Magazine just because... To me, it, pro- it it looks like it takes the most effort. It's got the most information. I did that for Best Magazine. And I did vote for that as the best article. Now, the best article, you can pick two. And the second one I did was actually something from, I believe, Monster Bash about the, individual, the Invisible Man Returns. Yeah, the production of Universal's Invisible Man Returns by Greg Mank. It was in Monster Bash number 29. When I was on Monster Kid Radio, and that's the movie that Derek and I did, I read that article for research, and it gave me a ton of talking points. It it was a really good article. So I'm glad I could vote for that as well as the Frankenstein, the True Story article. And some others stood out in my mind here as I'm looking at uh, Tim Lucas, of course, who is a Mario Bava expert, uh, wrote about Kaltiki uh, in Scream 33. Steve Avertlieb, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I'm friends with him on Facebook, he wrote a, a really great article about Robert Block, uh, the clown at midnight, from the Thunderchild.com uh, website that I was not familiar with. Rod Barnett's uh, article on Paul Nashi that appeared in Screen 34, which has an amazing, yeah. amazing cover. 
Oh, the one that kind of, yeah, I'm not familiar with this, but considering we just did Peter Lorre, Regarding the Incomparable Acting Career of Peter Lorre by Lucas Paris from Mondocult.com <laughs> kind of interested me. So, yeah, definitely uh, a lot of really great articles. Again, kind of adds to the wish list in some yep. of these great magazines. Yeah, and makes me think that I shouldn't be picking them just because of their covers. I should just be getting them all, but that wouldn't help me with my reading book issue. <laughs> uh, best interview kind of goes with this. I voted for a uh, Dark Shadows reference. Marie Wallace from Dark Shadows was interviewed by Rod, I don't know if it's Labby, Lab, Lab, L-A-B-B-E, and Scary Monsters number 104. He's been nominated several times and has never won I guess I haven't read most of these others because it it wasn't really a uh, d- tough decision for me. That's just what I picked. Did you vote? In this? I, I yeah, the same category because I was familiar with that one because of Scary Monsters. Oh, so. okay, good. Maybe he'll win this year. We have best columnist then, so regular feature in a magazine, and a, a lot of the magazines that we've talked about have columnists that are nominated. Did you? Vote for Scary Monsters again? Um, actually, I went with, uh, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, Scary Monsters. The Doctor is Insane, uh, Dr. Gangrene. Familiar with uh, with Dr. Gangrene's work, and so uh, it certainly felt like he's, he's a monster kid just like the rest of us, so I guess who I voted for him, yeah. <laughs> and I voted for John Kitley at Horror Hound with They Came From the Crypt. Every month he talks about two movies in the classic horror genre that are not particularly well known he also has a website kitley's crypt it was not nominated this year for best website but uh, i i for sure voted for him here i don't know if he's won before but he does consistently interesting good at promoting and bringing to light movies that people haven't heard of very in fact his slogan for his website and i believe in the column two is discover the horror i voted for john Best cover, man. That's always tough. Yeah. I love so many of these covers. What'd you go for? For me, I mean, this was tough, but it was also easy because Little Chop of Horrors, number 38. Mark Maddox does amazing work. I've got, you know, one of his prints on my wall, uh, an amazing print from The Raven, Vincent Price and Boris Karloff. It looks like a picture. His work is fantastic. And, and uh, yeah, Little Chop of Horrors is an amazing you know, wraparound cover that just, uh, I, I really hope gets it. It's, it's Yeah, and see, I voted for Mark for sure, but I went with Mad Scientist 32 because what I like to imagine is if you remove the, the logo and the title and you just have a piece of art, I kind of like that Godzilla King Ghidorah yeah. picture, and I could see that hanging on my wall. They're both beautiful. I mean, and yeah. it's a tough decision. It was between the two, but I went with the, the Mad Scientist. Yeah, that yeah, there that that was a I mean again, Mark Maddox does some amazing work. I mean his cover for Screen Thirty Four too of the Mad Monster Party was great. So I then I think yeah, that was a tough category. Yeah. So that's it for print, then we get into website, blog, and podcast. I know what I voted for for best website or blog. Well, I, I know what I voted <laughs> for as well. I mean, and I, you know, as I was looking at that list, again, you know, we're just not gonna beat that dead horse. I think that there's this is a category that I think should be divided and, and restructured a little bit. You do an amazing job with your website. Uh, I love the little things that you do, recognizing birthdays, recognizing what's on television. Uh, that requires some extra time and effort that uh, I wish that I would devote to my website. 
in my mind, yeah, and it's certainly what you did for the countdown to Halloween. It's always fun. Everybody does that. But the way you structured it last year and the kind of the trip around the world definitely was a notch above, I think, everyone else who did the countdown to Halloween, myself included. Yeah, that was that was an easy vote for me. Not because I knew who was behind <laughs> it, but because I think it's a, it's a great site. Well, thank you very much. I always consider you, you and my brother, my biggest fans, if I have fans. But I appreciate the support, and I thank you. I've, I love doing it, and thrilled to be on there. But there are other ones that I, I love, and I, I don't know. I always go through, should I vote for myself? Is that right or wrong? And anyway, others I love. I love Collins Sport Historical Society. I think we brought that up during the Dark Shadows episode. They are just the definitive site for Dark Shadows. I love Monster Kid Clubhouse, Monster Magazine World. Monster Magazine World is a great research site if you're collecting Monster Magazines, love that site, and love uh, Zombo's Closet. Have you ever gotten to Zombo's Closet? I have not. Uh, you see it on Facebook a lot. There's, I don't know if whoever does that does these other Facebook pages, but you'll see it a lot as like an associated or something. I need to go there more often. It's been a while since I've been there, but that's a fun site. We mentioned some things that are maybe a little irritating with the way the Rondos are structured. I think nowhere is it more apparent than Best Multimedia uh, Horror Site. Yeah. Because this is where they have podcasts. And not all of these are podcasts. So I don't want to bitch and moan about it, but I think if all the podcasts were together, it'd be easier to vote. I mean, you're not you're at least voting for the same thing. You're not having to decide, oh, what do I like better, a... a podcast or a series of youtube films you know it's they're different well, some of them are video casts some of them are websites i yeah it's i get it multimedia but i think this is a category that gets very convoluted because there's too many different varying types of media and i think it'd be better to take the time and, and break it down even if there's less nominees i think that saying that there's this is the best podcast of the year would mean more. And I think by breaking it down, you could potentially have maybe some more nominees listed that might get recognized. I don't know. I mean, I know I think they recognize all nominees, but I think it, it would be a little bit better. Because for me, I mean, I, I'm looking down the list. I mean, the B-Movie cast, you know, I actually mentioned this on my blog uh, yesterday, I believe, as we're recording this. Mary Rotolo didn't even know they were nominated this year. So she was very surprised to see that. I love that they're they're closing in on 400. Uh, I will be making my return to the B-Movie cast probably by May. One thing that Vince and I did uh, now years ago was we, during his outages, we covered a couple of William Shatner's films from the 70s, The Devil's Reign and Kingdom of the Spiders. We had talked about doing Incubus, then he passed, and I guess he did do some some early work on it, which I was a little surprised on. Mary mentioned that. I will be coming back to that that podcast, and I, I'm excited about that. You know, there's, of course, the fantastic films of Vincent Price. Dr. Gangreen's film-by-film film survey is amazing. It's a nice little companion piece as you're watching the Vincent Price films. Uh, I've heard a lot about the Kaiju cast. I've listened to a couple episodes over the years. That's amazing. Of course, Monster Kid Radio, a previous winner, uh, is just leaps and bounds above 
you know, so many of the other podcasts out there. I mean, it's, it's sets the bar rather high. So, but there's others on here that, that clearly didn't get mentioned like the Nashy cast or the classic horrors club or no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, yeah, it, this is a tough category and one that needs tweaking. Yeah, and I, I just want to call out a couple others. Between Light and Shadow is a great yeah, Twilight I Zone. I really, really enjoy that the way he did it. And with this category, I look into the creative aspect of it. So like Derek with Monster Kid Radio, definitely. And to think he does that week after week, it's just so reliable. It's so, by doing that, does more probably for classic horror than anyone hellbent for horror it's more modern horror but that that's a fun podcast i enjoy that kaiju cast i have listened to a couple like you said now we get into what i call reality conventions events horror hosts hard to vote for those it's hard because it you know the likelihood is unless you're a vendor you've maybe only gone to one or two of these if you're lucky and so you're basically voting for whatever is closest to you or whatever you've decided to take the track to. But I think it's okay if you've only, like, I voted for Monster Bash. That's the only yeah. one I've been to. I think that's okay. I went. I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic event. I'm going to vote for it. Uh, if I went and didn't like it and was disappointed, I, I wouldn't have voted for it. So I, I think there's, I, I don't think you have to go to everyone to vote. You, you couldn't. I don't know who does. Uh, somebody that obviously is independently wealthy and unemployed. Yeah. Same with best event, but we were lucky enough to both, well, we both went to Monster Bash too, but we both went to the Ray Harryhausen Mythical Menagerie exhibit in Oklahoma City, did an episode about that. Yes. It was great. I voted for that. Yeah, as did I. I didn't vote for Horror Host this year. I don't know. I mean, I know some of them. I know Dr. Gangrene mostly from being on... Uh, Monster Kid Radio, and I've watched his Vincent Price. I I probably should have voted for him. Svengoolie, I wouldn't. Just it's that level of you know professionalism again. Well, it, it, yeah, this is. Or, I, I voted for Svengoolie, but I yeah, he's definitely leaps and bounds above some of the others that I am familiar with, and simply because he's been doing it, and he's got production values and the caliber of films maybe are better. Uh, yeah, some of these I, I question. Joe Bob Briggs, I didn't realize he did anything last year other than maybe appear somewhere. I mean, we saw him, right. you know. But is he doing, like, regular work? I didn't think that he was. Elvira? I didn't think she was Elvira at all last year other than maybe an appearance. Lord Bloodrod I'm familiar with. Anyway, like you said, I think Svengoolie is just, it's a natural, but... You're not necessarily fair because some of these are obviously much more localized. Uh, some of them are on the internet, but Sven Cooley is on a major network. He's, and to the best of my knowledge, he's the only one that's on a major network, and that that gives him a decisive advantage. I totally think he deserves it. I, I don't know at the moment. I just didn't vote for. Oh, him. he deserves it. Yeah, I agree. But I think it's an unfair category. Yeah. Next is Best Horror Comic, and I like this because it combines the world of comic books and horror. This is one you can pretty easily find most of the nominees and at least check out an issue, if not at your comic store digitally, uh, which is how I did uh, several of these. Any thoughts on this category? Um, you know, I, I had several issues of American Gods. I I don't know. I struggle with that. I, 
I didn't really, I couldn't get into the TV series. I made it maybe through, I think, four or five episodes. I just, it wasn't hooking me. Uh, and kind of the same with the comic series. Um, the Creeps I love because it is very much like you're reading an old issue of Creepy. Uh, I love Haunted Horror, which is basically reprints, and which I think maybe is a little unfair because it's not a, original content. But I voted for Shadows on the Grave. That was a fun uh, series. Uh, I think it was well done. So, hmm. do you read? Have you read any of the Archie uh, horror comics? I have not. Those are fantastic. And I think Afterlife with Archie might have won last year. I don't know. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but they're good. They're serious. They're scary. I voted. Oh, I did, I'm sorry. I say all that, and I didn't. But Jughead the Hunger is the new edition this year. He's a werewolf in that. That's great. Uh, next year, I expect to see. Uh, they're doing one with Veronica, where she's a vampire. I can't remember how what it's called, Vampironica or something like that. Those are great comics. Um, there's a graphic novel, and again, I don't know if that deserve. Do you a one-time publication? Should that be in books, or do you put it in to comics where it's issues. Uh, I have not read it. It has been recommended to me by several people. It's on my list. Uh, I want to get, but I actually wrote in, well, there were several write-ins that I wanted to consider. One of them is the Captain Kronos comic book from Titan. Now, Anno Dracula was nominated from Titan and Captain Kronos wasn't. Uh, Between the two, Captain Kronos for sure. A lot of those Titan books start out really strong, and Anno Dracula did, but I lose interest by the time, and they're only four or five issues. Captain Kronos, though, was great and would be a great ongoing series, so I really like that. But what I voted for, ultimately, was something called Fractured Scary Tales. It's an independent thing. You can only get it from their website. Uh, I don't even know what the website is, but they have a Facebook page, Fractured Scary Tales. They're mashups between... Uh, famous movies and monsters. So the Maltese Falcon, for example, they do a spoof of it, which I can't remember what the monster movie is that they combine. Anyway, it's uh, the, this one gentleman draws it and writes it, magazine-sized, black and white, just incredibly creative and fun the way that he mashes these together. So that's actually what I voted for uh, and wrote that in. I wrote about that on my blog. Sorry for the lack of detail here. But if you check out ClassicHorrors.club, you can read more about the ones that I wrote in. They also are doing a non an ongoing series. I don't think it'd be eligible for this year, but it's called Lady Frankenstein and the Mummy's Brain. I am drawing a blank. And anyway, it's another mashup, but this is going to be an ongoing. It's a standard size comic book in color, you know, professional quality. Same people do that. It's really good. The first issue was good. I voted for those guys. Best CD, you got to tell me, Rich. I I know you get some of these. And this is interesting, too. Best CD, but yet I know you got, like, the Dracula on vinyl. Yeah, and it wasn't released on CD. So (laughs) uh, a category that probably needs to have a new name. The only one I was actually familiar with was Bram Stoker's Dracula. But, man, uh, what an amazing production from Bleak December. Anthony D.P. Mann from Horror Etc. Podcast has done this amazing series of, of audio productions that are just like out of the old-time radio days. And Dracula was was amazing. It, it featured Tony Todd from Candyman fame. Great stuff. Great 
production values, great cover, great artwork. And I believe there's talk of maybe doing another run of these. They do a limited run and they're gone. They're not bad price-wise. I mean, typically about $25 for vinyl, which is a little higher, but considering that these are limited runs, you're getting usually colored vinyl and they throw in a few extras, posters, what have you. I have every one that, that they've done so far with the exception of uh, Anthony did a reading of the cask of Amontillado and it was only to subscribers of which I was not. And I don't know why I'm not because I've gotten everything else they've done. But uh, yeah, I, I hope that wins because it's uh, it's been some other great work and continue to do work and he's working with some good actors. And so, yeah, highly recommend it. The only one I could have voted for because I was familiar with it was Hammer Horror Classic Themes 1958 to 1974, uh, which was a CD. But I just had a feeling compared to some of these others, even though I had not um, listened to them that I, I didn't think it was worthy of voting for. Well, that gets us to the write-in categories. You write in who you want for best writer, best artist, best fan artist, international fan of the year, monster kid of the year, and finally the monster kid Hall of Fame. Uh, I only did a couple. I wrote in Mark Maddox for best artist. As did I. I wrote in for monster kid Hall of Fame. I, I did Riku Browning. I kind of sensed there was a sort of a campaign to get him nominated final living universal monster. He's not in the hall of fame. That'd be really cool. And I just heard this week after I voted that some people are trying to get Elvira in. That was after I voted. So I didn't even think about her. Did you pick anyone for monster kid hall of fame? I did not. I wish I had known about Riku Browning. Uh, I would have voted for that. You know, I did best artists. Like I said, Mark Maddox, um, and uh, Monster Kid of the Year uh, was, I think, the only other category I did, and, and I voted for Derek. The work that he does on Monster Kid Radio puts him at, a, at another level. He is a, he's a monster kid, truly a monster kid, but he is, uh, you know, certainly the mastermind behind Monster Kid Radio and, and deserves a little extra recognition beyond the podcast because, uh, and, you know, he's going to be doing some great on-site work at this year's Monster Bash. So uh, I hope I hope he gets that. Yeah, I, that's who I vote for as well. And just a quick comment, I don't really understand this difference between best artist and best fan artist. I mean, I guess I do. Fan artist probably doesn't have widespread recognition or get magazine covers, but I wonder how you even see any work from these people. Uh, I guess if you know them. I don't know. Yeah, Sorry. I think it's it's probably more who you know type deal, I think, on some of that. So that's it. That's the Rondo Awards for 2017. Like we said, chances are we know now who the winners are. Congratulations to everybody. I guess we never got around to doing our holiday wish list, did we? We did not. We were going to uh, we were going to do the episode and then reality yeah. real world kind of yeah kind so of i'm just saying there. this kind of substitutes for that we've kind of made up for that by i don't think we intended to spend as much time talking about it but no and i think by the time this episode comes out the the voting will be gone but i don't know if the the awards will be announced so i think that maybe hopefully by the time we do our may episode the awards will be so we can maybe uh, give some shout out and recognition to some of our friends maybe uh, someone on the podcast will be uh, a winner. 
That'd be. I, I'd love to be able to, you know, just look at a Rondo Award. You know, yeah. I, mean, I, I would love. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us who are part of this community oh. would love to to say that they've been nominated. So. Here is, and I don't even want to talk about. It. I'm really superstitious, you know. That's why I don't talk about this stuff. But so I looked just in case. I know they give them out at Fantastic Fest in is that in Louisville. Uh, I think so. so. And, yeah. and I'm like, well, you know, if I won, would I go and accept it and all that? And I thought, well, let me. It, and it's not a convention I'd usually go to because it's model building and crafty, creative stuff. But I looked to see who the guests are, and John Amplis, who played Martin in oh, Martin, oh. that I have loved so much these past few <clears throat> months, is a guest. Number one, yeah, I think I would go if I was, were lucky enough to win, but. I also, part of me thinks, is that fate, you know? I don't oh, know. I don't know. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be awesome. I, yeah. I, 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 when is it? Uh, it's in May. I don't know the exact date, but... Man, uh, that, that, I, well, I... And if... if I, I, I might have to... I might have to tag along. No, no. Like if, a, I, if it should happen, I, I would love for you to come with me. Yeah, so. that, that would be awesome. So, yeah. I think, you know, it, it, as they say, it's always just an honor being nominated, and I think that that... That is a special form of recognition. So, oh, yeah. because um, I think it just shows the time and effort you put into it, and and someone has recognized that. Well, and if it brought anyone to look at the site just for, you know, to come see it, I it's worth it. I someone mean, I, to nominate you and. You, you, know, you said it wasn't it was, you. It wasn't me because I didn't know the rondos were coming up already. Yeah. I would have. Had I known, I didn't. So there's, you've got at least one other fan out there. Yeah. We're going to do something a little different this time. We're going to go ahead and wrap up the episode. As you know, we put out sort of a bonus extra episode at our normal uh, meeting time. So we have two this month. We'll do some of our other features on that one and uh, talk about what's going on. Uh, but we'll wrap this up. Remember, you can contact us at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Anything else we need to tell them? Any housekeeping? or I think we should probably just remind that, that we are available through a different avenue now, uh, through some recent changes. Old episodes that were part of the, uh, the previous podcast network that we were on are still, as we know, should still be available through that on various sources, SoundCloud, iTunes. We are looking into a way to bring them into our new feed we hope to be able to do that. That may take a little bit of time because of some limitations. So we are working on that. And actually, maybe it'll be resolved by the time we do this episode or actually goes out live. Nonetheless, uh, you can find us um, on SoundCloud and hopefully on iTunes. iTunes, And you will be able to subscribe to Just Us. I think that's been kind of a wish list we've heard from some people that would kind of hope that they would just be able to subscribe to our show some things happen and the timing is right, which is why we did that. The latest episode will be up on my homepage at caseycinephile.com. There's different ways to find us. And this is all just a disclaimer. We don't know at this time. Maybe it'll be seamless. Maybe there won't be any issues and this will... Exactly. Uh, so uh, this And I guess be... I will then edit this out and they won't even hear exactly. it. But just in case we're recording. Just in case we're recording. Yeah. And I think, I guess the last little bit of news is homework for for next month what yes. are we going to do well and and first though i want to say in the the place you can visit to find out information about all this in between episodes is our facebook group page the classic horrors club podcast so yes homework yeah, for and, next time and i will certainly put it up on on my blogs and and me as well as well. Yeah. well we'll get the word out 
May is, of course, the birth month of uh, three legends, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Vincent Price. Last year, we did one movie of each. This year, we're just going to celebrate Vincent Price, and we're going to do so by talking about the Fly Trilogy, of which Vincent Price is in two of the three films, the original Fly, Return of the Fly, and The Curse of the Fly, which I know is not as good as the first two. I've never seen it, though. And I'm curious. So You might uh, like it. I might like it. So we'll be talking about Fly. So that's your homework for next month. Play along at home. Watch those films. And I guess technically could be a couple weeks from now. So you're going to have to put in a few extra hours to, to catch up. Because we'll be guess getting back on track, we assume, in May with doing the next episode. Regular episode will be in maybe two or three weeks. So Thank you for listening, everybody. We truly appreciate it. Glad to have you as part of the club. We'll go out with The Creeper by Molly Hatchett from their Greatest Hits compilation available on iTunes. We will see you next time. Take care. Shining long I say it's gonna be a cold